episode number 31, Pat Flood. And welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your sickly host, Michael Cruz, suffering from a bout of laryngitis. Uh, thank you, Blythe friends, for that party over the weekend, but committed to bringing you the best audio in Canadian theatre design. Now, I was in full voice when I had an in-depth and illuminating conversation with designer Pat Flood. Pat met me in May at her office at the University of Guelph, and we chatted about her early training in Alberta and Minnesota, and went on to discuss her career in film and television and working on iconic programs, programs like uh, Kids in the Hall uh, and great Canadian theatre like the Black Bond Spiel of Wooly McCrimmon by W.O. Mitchell. Now, make sure to check out the show notes. There was a lot of name dropping, and there are a few portfolio shots from Pat's collection that'll help illustrate our chat. And if you are able, go to patreon.com to support the Title Block podcast. We had another opportunity to record a conversation at the Bellows here in Toronto uh, a few weeks ago, and that show will be up soon. So to continue supporting the collection of Canadian theatre stories, please consider throwing us a couple of bucks an episode. Uh, it really helps. I don't get a lot of mail, but uh, if you have any comments about the show, please forward them to thetitleblock at gmail.com or contact us through Facebook or Twitter, and I would love to hear from you. Now, that's all for my scratchy voice, save for the extra. Can't wait for that. So here's my conversation with Pat Flood. Pat Flood has a career spanning 40 years as a designer for film and theater and is currently a tenured professor at the University of Guelph School of English and Theater Studies, where she joins me today. Pat Flood, welcome to the title block. Thank you very much. It's great to have you. Great idea to do this. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to speak with you as well, since you you kind of started, I met you at the start of my career when I was at Blythe for the first time, so it's great to have this conversation to sort of recap uh, the last 40 years of your your career. Oh my gosh. And what's going on in the future. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So (laughs) now you... You were born in Alberta, correct? Yes, in Calgary. In Calgary. And, and, and you ended up at the University of Alberta? Yes. And how did that happen? Did you, did you study theater there, I'm assuming? Yeah, well, growing up in Calgary in the 50s and 60s, um, you would understand, I think. It was, you know, suburban Calgary, 19, circa 1965. <laughs> what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> and I was lucky enough, there was a children's theater that came out of the what was it called, the Allied Arts Centre in downtown Calgary. And, of course, I thought I wanted to be an actor because, well, that's theatre, right? You want to be an actor. Mm -hmm. And uh, also there was a good theatre program at Henry Wisewood High School where I went. Mm -hmm. And I realised very quickly that maybe I wasn't going to be cast in a lot of things. So, oh, I know, I can do the backgrounds. I can paint, right? Oh, I like doing this. And bit by bit I decided, you know, against my parents' better advice and wishes that I was going to be a theatre designer. And uh, 
I don't actually know. Someone must have given me that idea. Mm -hmm. At the time, I thought it was, you know, you just painted sets and made them look nice, and I thought that would be really cool. And there was a program at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. It was a four-year BFA, a very new one, started by a man named Gordon Peacock, who had been, I think, teaching at the National Theatre School, and he really wanted to have a theatre school in Western Canada. And so he got a bunch of people together. He got the university to approve it. It was a good time for all of that, mm-hmm. the arts coming into universities. Mm-hmm. It was sort of the academic world was relaxing a little bit about that maybe there might be some content in the arts mm-hmm. and maybe we should actually, you know, put, put this into higher learning. And I was, um, yeah, I was there for four years at U of A. I loved it. It was a fabulous program. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a woman there named Gwen Keatley who was very much my mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was um, a graduate of the National Theatre School originally from Sault Ste. Marie, very talented designer. And she and her husband, Bob Carmichael, who uh, who designed the Looney, by the way, kind oh, of <laughs> a side fun fact, um, Robert Ralph Carmichael, who's a painter, they both taught me what it was to be an artist, to think as an artist, uh, as a designer, which it was a real revelation to me. I had no idea. And it was so exciting mm-hmm. to learn that I could draw, mm-hmm. that I could be a part of the process of creating theater, rather than just responding to it. So that was, yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. And was the program, was it was it a specific design program, or was it, yes. a, it was a design program? Yeah, it was, you did, um, your first year was kind of general, where you took acting and, and, and technical stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, there was a wonderful course uh, taught by a man named Bernie Engel, which was creating sort of happenings. Uh, <laughs> it was called collages at the time, where you created small theatrical events mm-hmm. and played all the different parts in it, but you were the producer and the conceiver, which was a fabulous learning experience. And then you specialized in, in design. So you learned technical, but you also learned um, art as well. And what was really unique, I think, about the program at the time is a lot of people learned to be designers by learning how to build sets. Mm-hmm where we learned how to paint and draw and think like artists, mm-hmm. and then we learned how to create it. You know, the idea was, if you have the idea, someone can build it, someone will find a way, but your job as a designer is to have that imagination to kind of lead the process and be a visual director. Mm-hmm. So, And did they have the... Uh, at the time, obviously, there was... There was the, the theater community in Canada had um, kind of burst out of the 1960s mm-hmm. quite... Uh, and flowered, I think, by that point quite well. Mm-hmm. Was there enough, were all the staff uh, Canadians, or did they bring people in from outside of Canada to, to teach? Or was there was it a just... lot of Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting, my design teachers, uh, the first one was an American, mm-hmm. then Gwen Keatley. Uh, they were both there together. And then, then there was a British designer who came in named David Lovett. Mm-hmm. So I had three very unique perspectives. The American designer, uh, whose name was, well, Len Feldman, and then he was replaced by... Um, Larry Cadillac, they were very much technicians. They were, you got to get your drafting down and you got to pass the, 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 the exams, right? It was all about the, the big um, uh, international scenic artist exam in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, whereas the other people were coming from a very different perspective, which was wonderful because you got both sides of it. Yeah. And uh, did you go to, who were your classmates? How many people were in the program, first of all? Was it a large program? No, or? it wasn't. That was the other thing. It was like a little boutique program. We had our own studio. There was a senior design studio and a more junior design studio. I think there was maybe seven or eight Mm -hmm. uh, other design students. Who did I go to school with? Uh, Tom Wood, Mm -hmm. Bob Baker, um, 
Rick Roberts, who you might not know, mm-hmm. but Rick and Guy and Peter Roberts all have been part of the theater community for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, their sister, Lisa, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick is a film designer in, in Calgary now, mm-hmm. has been for years. Um, trying to think who else was there at the time. Cheryl Cashman, I don't know if you know Cheryl. It's going to escape me, a lot of the other people, but most of them went into the profession in one way or another. Yeah. It sounds like a, uh, I spoke with Alan Stitchbury, mm-hmm. and he was a U of A grad as yeah. well, after tootling around BC a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a, uh, and from the people you mentioned, quite mm-hmm. an important uh, program. Yeah. For its time, it was really unique. Yeah. And you know, one of many things where I think, I was so fortunate because I just stumbled into it. <laughs> it's like, well, I was going to go to Toronto, but I couldn't really figure out the whole U of T thing because there was all these colleges and I couldn't figure out where the theater program was and stuff. And then I thought, oh, look, Edmonton. And my mother said, that'll be good. <laughs> you won't be so far away. You bring your laundry home. <laughs> That's right. And st- speaking of stumbling into things, now after you left uh, the U of A, you ended up at, in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, how, did you, how did you find your way yeah, again, down there? Very crazy. Yeah. I, um, I was at U of A. And I graduated, and I went to Toronto uh, for a year because that was the place to go, really, and had a really fascinating year of because this was when Toronto alternative theater was really taking off. It was just post farm showtime, mm-hmm. and it was it, there was so much crazy stuff going on. But somewhere in all of that, I got a letter from one of the people at the U of A saying there's this uh, M- MFA program at the University of Minnesota, and they're soliciting candidates, and we think you would be good. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to apply, we'll recommend you. So I thought, wow, wow, I've never been to the United States, Minnesota. Why not? Give it a try. I applied, and I got in. And, you know, again, having no idea what I was getting into. I was just, I'm I'm so glad I did it. Uh, Minneapolis is a fabulous city. And and the university, it was a real surprise to me because here I was, I thought, I'll do an MFA because that will give me a chance to really perfect my work, to make, you know, fail within a, you know, an educational setting where it's not going to be such a trauma and I can learn more and learn different things, different perspectives. But it was a very um, underdeveloped program. The problem was that in most American universities, I don't know if this is still the same, the undergraduate degree is very general and they don't really uh, get specific about something like design until a graduate degree. Mm -hmm. So the things that I was learning were things that I'd learned in my second year at U of A. And it was very technical. Mm-hmm. So you, I was building platforms, being a shop assistant, hanging lights. And I kept going, well, where's, yeah, but where's the art? Where's the, and it didn't work out eventually very well. Mm-hmm. I, it was a two-year program in my second year. I had, that summer, I was an assistant designer at Stratford. So I'd gone off to Stratford and I got a very nasty letter from them saying, you've, you've left two, two courses. You were, in those days, you were allowed to take incompletes and finish them later. Mm-hmm. So I was working at night, sitting in the office at Stratford, the secretary's office, because I had to borrow a typewriter, mm-hmm. typewriter time, those, no computers then, mm-hmm. trying to get all these papers and things done. And I got this very nasty letter saying that, you know, you know you're really not material for our program because, we, you know, because I was called a Bush Foundation Fellow, okay. <laughs> a Bush Fellow. Um, you know, Bush Foundation Fellows don't take incompletes, but no one had told me. That was the whole problem. No one told me anything. So I said, well, fine then, goodbye. And I went back, and a friend of mine had wanted to do a film, and I thought, well, why not? So we got a camera and and got involved with the animation sort of 
people, Oxbury, that's the name of the, of the camera, the Oxbury camera mm-hmm. that we used. And we, it was, we did a lot of stills on an animation camera and we made a film called The History of Dinkytown, mm-hmm. which was um, a little small town that's part of the university. Really interesting. Um, Pillsbury, Pillsbury Flower, General Mills, mm-hmm. all those things, 3M, all of them came out of that little area of Minneapolis. So it was very interesting. And yeah. We made the film, and it's now in, it's either in the university archives or, or the Minnesota archives. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that was your first uh, film experience. Yeah. And later on, you'd find yourself uh, going, designing for film. Mm-hmm. We'll get there eventually, though. Yeah. So, so you, you, how did you get uh, your break at Stratford? Was it just uh, people you knew through U of A? And, uh, now, how did Stratford first happen? Oh, my gosh. I should know. <laughs> I know they were looking for an assistant design for assistant designers. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just said, "Hey, I can do this." Mm-hmm. I uh, you know, must have put in a portfolio and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was a wonderful fellow there named Jack Hutt, mm-hmm. who was um um Bill Hutt's brother or mm-hmm. I think no, brother, cousin, Bill mm-hmm. Hutt's cousin. And um he said, "Well, you know, we have we have different positions here and you could we're starting this thing called the third stage." Mm-hmm which uh, that later became the, the Patterson Theatre, and we wanted to do a season, and we need an assistant. And there was a wonderful designer named John Ferguson, somebody you should interview. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, fabulous designer. Yeah. And he was... Um, he needed an assistant, so I was John Ferguson's assistant, mm-hmm. and we did um, the collected works of Billy the Kid mm-hmm. with John Wood directing, the first production of that, Michael Andachi's... Um, show with Michael Andachi before he was famous, mm-hmm. kind of hanging around telling us stories about why he loved spaghetti westerns and why he'd written this this piece of poetry, this beautiful piece of poetry. Yeah. And um, it kind of, it was wonderful because we were in this old curling rink yeah. and at the time there wasn't the permanent stage there so we had to change it for everything. A group of French people came in, really amazing, like Monique Mercure and, and André Brassard and people who are huge names now mm-hmm. in, in French theatre, Quebecois theatre, uh, who I didn't know who they were. They just sort of came in and did a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was yeah, quite the experience. And then from there, I was kind of in as an assistant, right? So I went back, I think, for five more seasons, uh, not consecutively. My last one was, I believe it was 1986. I assisted uh, Tanya Maseevich mm-hmm. uh, when she was doing The Government Inspector, mm-hmm. which is a really great experience as well. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else uh, did you did you make your way back to Toronto and start working in uh, in, in small independent theatre uh, uh, as well, like the exploding past mm-hmm. and factories and all that stuff that was happening back yeah. in the 70s? Yeah, I did. I When I finished at um, University of Minnesota, I went back to Calgary first, and I, was, I worked at the Citadel Theatre in Edmonton for a bit. John Neville was the artistic director then. Mm-hmm. And then I was hired as resident designer at Theatre Calgary. So I'm just trying to think how that... It's funny. You, you think you'd remember all this, right? <laughs> but 40 years is a long time. I do remember working... Okay. Because when did Toronto Free start? Anyway, this won't be interesting to your listeners, so I have to remember. Um, so I, I was resident designer at Theatre Calgary. I moved to Toronto for, uh, permanently in 1980. But before that, I spent time in Toronto working, uh, well, at the beginning of Toronto Free Theatre. Mm-hmm. I'd worked at Passamurai uh, when it was in Trinity Church. Mm-hmm. Paul Thompson hired me. <laughs> I, think, I think he gave me $70. And he said, uh, okay, what you don't spend on the show, you can keep yourself. 
So I think I got paid 35 bucks. Right. I was the costume designer for a show. Um, I can't even remember who who directed it at that point. And um, I think I did another show for Pass Mariah as well. And those were really the sort of the hippie, trippy times, mm-hmm. right? It, at times when opportunities for youth grants and local initiatives, LIP grants were around. Mm-hmm. And I had, um, oh, that's right. I'm remembering now. I was hired as, as a... I was a production assistant at what is now Cannes Stage. It was called the St. Lawrence Center for the Arts. A man named Thomas Bodinetsky hired me. And I said, well, I, I'm a designer. I don't want to be a production assistant. And he said, okay, that's all right then. Okay, you can assist our designer, who was uh, a man named Murray Lawfer. Mm-hmm. So I assisted Murray for a year at, um, uh, Can, uh, I was going to say Cannes Stage, St. Lawrence Center for the Arts. And at the end of it, we did a play called Captives of the Faceless Drummer by George Riga, directed by Martin Kinch and and starring a lot of people who were in Toronto theatre at the time. It was kind of the young, radical youth show, Mm -hmm. collective creation kind of feel to it. And um, uh, they all then went on to form Toronto Free Mm -hmm. Theatre and asked me if I'd do props for them. So I should, said, sure, that sounds great to me. And it was actually the same summer that I was hired that first year at Stratford, I believe. So I left Toronto Free to go to Stratford to work at the third stage. Yeah. So that would have been earlier, yeah. What a great connection. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, how, you, what was your first big breakout design hit then? Like, what, what did you do when, what was your first professional show that you, that you designed as, a, as the lead designer as opposed to an assistant? Or a, would have been the Theatre Calgary shows. Oh, yeah. So uh, how did how did they you were the resident designer? Did you how many shows of the season did you do the whole thing or did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. In those days, you did. I remember actually, it was really funny. I, I remember I made eleven thousand dollars that season, which seemed like the best. Yeah. Oh, I bought a car, I had my own apartment, yeah. and I remember Walter Learning came by from the Canada Council and said, "You're paying your designers too much." Oh, <laughs> and I don't think it was a personal thing. I don't yeah. think it was me personally, but I thought, "Oh, that's not fair." Wait a minute, because. <laughs> It was actually a living wage. Uh, anyway, it w- yes, it would have been Theatre Calgary. Um, I did two seasons for them, once as resident designer, and then um, a man named Gavin Semple came in for the next year, and I designed several of their shows. Right. And then I went to, to Toronto and just freelanced wherever I could. Yeah. I worked at, uh, mostly at Tarragon, mm-hmm. a few shows for Tarragon, uh, some stuff for Theatre Plus. I don't know if you remember oh, old yeah. Theatre Plus. Um, and... Part of all of that, I, I had dis- done a show at Alberta Theatre Projects in, in Calgary, and John Morrell, I met the playwright John Morrell, mm-hmm. who became a good friend, and he had written a show called A Great Noise, A Great Light, which had been a huge uh, success at, at, um, in the theater, Alberta Theatre Projects, and they wanted to take it to Tarragon, and I was in the midst of designing it, and I got a call from John saying, I hope you're sitting down. <laughs> he said, I just talked to Bill Glasgow at Tarragon, and I'm not ready. I don't think the play's ready. I, I don't want to do it. I've pulled it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? And he said, look, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. So because I had worked at, at Tarragon already on a couple of shows and met the wonderful Bill Glasgow and got to work with him, um, I had done a show called Johannes and the Talmud, mm-hmm. which um, I guess was sort of my... my big show that I, I did there. I was the costume designer on that. And um, I called my friend Bjarni Christensen, who was the technical director there at the time. And I said, you remember you were telling me about this theater company that you and your friend were, were forming? And he said, oh yeah, that's James Roy. We're, we're starting this company called the Blythe uh, Theater, the Blythe Summer Festival it was called at the time. And he said, yeah, we need a resident designer. Do you want to come out? 
And I thought, well, yeah, that'd be great. A whole summer worth of work? Sounds good to me. So the next day they, they called, they both called, and I did an interview with James, and I, I must have shown him pictures of my work and that kind of thing. And lo and behold, there I was, the resident designer, uh, and it, <laughs> at a crazy time in Blythe when the theatre, the stage was so small that you had to design the sets so that the other sets went behind because okay. there was no wing space. Okay. So as, the, as, the, as the, the season went on, your sets got smaller and smaller <laughs> and smaller. So I remember the last set, it was for a play called Gwendolyn, and all I could do was put up some flats, and I painted them kind of like trees in silhouette. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of platforms and some props because behind those flats were a, a lot of set pieces. <laughs> That's a very interesting way to do rep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it all it was all built in the theater as well, or was it built in a, well, it was in built, a barn or something? Well, it? it wasn't in a barn. There was a little space up above that used to be a Masonic. No, was it a Masonic lodge? No, it had been where the. Oh, Sean Kerwin could tell you. It's it's where they used to roll all the bandages. It was administrative offices, oh, I think. That's right. All the yeah, bandages said, for the yeah. for the uh, the Red Cross, and, and it was like a time capsule in yeah. in the forties. Yeah. And they they opened it up, and Sean was there when they did that. Yeah. And I was a couple of years uh, uh, later, and um, I, I came in and and uh, they built it in this. It was about the size of somebody's kitchen mm -hmm. where they built the sets. Mm -hmm. So most of them were done outside as well. I remember that first season, we were painting the sets outside, and we had a typical Huron County thunderstorm mm -hmm. at, at 3 in the morning. And we were so tired. We just didn't have the energy to even put anything away. So I just left all everything painted lying on the, the grass in front of the theater. The, the, the townsfolk loved it, right? Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. But... It started to pour rain, and I woke up and I thought, oh, no, it's all going to be ruined. But I just did, I couldn't get up. And Bjarni, bless his heart, um, he drove, he was staying with his family in Clinton. He got in, in, in a car or a truck or whatever he was driving, and he drove all the way to Blythe and put everything under shelter mm -hmm. and saved. When we came in the next morning, he was a, a real hero. So anyway, that's, but yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. What, what about the experience um, was so special, and what about it sort of made you believe that design was was where it was at or that well, this was what you should be doing yeah it was it was you know design and theater itself mm -hmm. just to do plays about our own community mm -hmm. was so wonderful and the only experience I had had before that I remember doing Uncle Vanya at uh, the Citadel and a friend of mine who was an Aggie student from U of A uh, had come to see it and he said I said, you know, it's Chekhov, Russian. You probably won't be able to relate. And he said, no, it's about a man losing his land. Mm -hmm. I totally understand this. And it was the first time I actually, it ever dawned on me that theater could be about something that would relate to you that deeply. Mm -hmm. It sounds odd, but I find it with my students now, the same thing. Mm -hmm. They think theater's dressing up and going to Shaw and Stratford, and it's it's culture, mm -hmm. you know? And... Um, it was so interesting because I was working as an assistant at Stratford, and that was a wonderful learning experience, but certainly within a certain theatre tradition. And then to get in my car and drive 45 minutes to Blythe to work there and see shows, it um, it was so different. And, and the, it was Anne Chislett's production of The Tomorrow Box, I remember watching... And I think the actor's name was Dean Hawes, and he was playing a fellow named Robin, Robin Thompson, because it was all in the, th the farm show tradition where you would go out into the community and kind of, you know, take your characters from the people you met. And there was this very well-known farmer named Robin Thompson who was quite a personality. And when Dean walked on stage, and I think it was a scene where he, he had to take a, a teacup he, he, to get his wife to give him more coffee, he took his teaspoon and hit it against the cup. <laughs> and the audience just went crazy, of course. And... I realized that there was an audience that was completely connected mm -hmm. to these plays. But also something that was important for me was 
being so much a part of the creation of the play. Mm -hmm. And that's something that stayed with me all my life, is that often you'd do a show at Blythe and the second act wouldn't be written yet. Mm-hmm. So you'd sit with the playwright and you'd talk about things and, and through lines and how the, the whole shape of the thing and, and, and making them realize how much a part of the dramaturgy the design was, mm-hmm. the world, the, the space that you create, the characters. And being so respected and being part of all of that was such a great learning experience, uh, it, which stayed with me today. No, yes, I'm remembering now, because Blythe was 78, I believe. I believe I went to Blythe in 78, then I went back to Theatre Calgary. That's what happened. As I, I worked at Blythe in 78, then I became resident designer at Theatre Calgary. Oh, I, we, well, okay, that was, the, that was the progress there. Okay, yeah. we jumped around a little bit. There. Yeah. Okay, I see. And then I came back and I moved to Toronto sort of full-time in 80. Yeah, okay. From 80 to 86, little realizing I was actually going to end up moving to Montreal. Teach at Concordia. Well, that's great. So, so uh, in the meantime, so you moved back from uh, you moved back from Blythe uh, in the early. Uh, oh, sorry, you moved. You went to K- uh, Calgary and you came back to, to Toronto in the early eighties. Uh, how did you find your way to Concordia? We can just start from there. I think yeah, that's a great idea. Sure. Yeah, because um, I was working in, in nineteen well nineteen eighty. I moved to Toronto permanently, and from there, I worked at CBC. Uh, the CBC picked me up. I believe my first show was 1981. I showed a show called Home Fires. And I was working off and on sort of between CBC as a freelancer and in, and in theater. Mm-hmm. And I went to Concordia because my husband at the time was going to the National Theater School to study design. Mm-hmm. So Concordia, it seemed like a perfect thing that they were looking for someone to teach design there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is perfect because I can have a full-time job while helping get through school. And so that's what we did. I applied and, and was lucky enough to get it and was, again, a full-time tenured uh, assistant professor mm-hmm. there for, I believe it was six years. And I decided to leave for a couple of reasons. I established, really established myself at CBC. Mm-hmm. And I had some very good friends there who were offering me work. And I came back. I, I had a sabbatical after six years at Concordia, and I was finding the teaching there very difficult mm-hmm. for many different reasons. Part of it was just living in Quebec and not feeling like I wasn't pure laine and I wasn't feeling at home there. Mm-hmm. And I was offered um, a job as an art director on Kids in the Hall mm-hmm. from, by my friend Paul Ames, who was the production designer. So w- while I was on sabbatical, I worked for kids, Kids in the Hall, as a designer, and I loved it. Yeah. And I thought... I don't think I want to stop doing this. So when kids renewed for the next season, I said to Concordia, I'm really sorry, but I, I, I don't think... I, was, I think I, w- I was in my 30s at the time, mm-hmm. and I was just afraid of becoming a bitter old teacher mm-hmm. who was jealous of everybody else working. Yeah. And though Concordia was very good and it allowed me to design shows while I was there, it, I wanted that film experience, and I wanted to just be much more involved in, in more, more work. I just wanted to try different things. So it was a really wise decision. And it was good as well because Concordia understood and some of my my former students ended up teaching in the program mm-hmm. and then they brought me back. So years later, I think 
about five or six years later, I went back as a resident artist there, and then they brought me back in different capacities over several years, right up until 2005. So I was still having being able to come to Concordia and teach, which I loved, because it was a really, it probably still is, I don't know, but mm-hmm. at the time was a very uh, dynamic training program for designers, mm-hmm. uh, training people for the profession, and... I loved being part of that. I just didn't want to commit myself to it full time, so it worked out really well. And the other thing that was good about it was then I had teaching credentials, which right. have really, really helped me in the future. It seems surprising to me that you got tenure so quickly. I've been a very lucky person, <laughs> or I'm brilliant. One of the two. Well, probably. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I that, think luck played a great, a great part. I'm sure the yeah. brilliance comes with it, but but it, it seems like in, in a in a especially in theater it, it, the the in any, in any other kind of academic um, focused profession like so I do a lot mm-hmm. of science so yeah. uh, science certainly tenure track is what a lot of people I mean you, you research and their their professorship go together right yeah. so the two the two um, activities are cl- are closely married and mm-hmm. people who are in the social sciences is the same thing right yeah. you're doing research you're right you're, you're producing material that fits within the academic environment whereas in theater um, in many cases, Everyone does their initial training and then works professionally for a number of years before they actually come back and train. In fact, I think unlike in a university where you've got TAs that are only a few years older than the students, uh, in many cases in theater, if, if that was to happen, you'd be looked on a probably with a bit of suspicion, like, what do you know? You've only been doing this for two or three years, and we mm-hmm. want the people who are senior to tell us about how, how things get done, right? Uh, is that, is that well, true? Well, I guess or by that... that time, by the time I got to Concordia, I had a substantial body of work behind oh, me, sure. and also the, the film, well, TV at that point, very little film work. So I think they liked all of that, and mm-hmm. I continued to keep that up. And then while I was at Concordia, or maybe just before, I, be, I was president of the Associated Designers of Canada as mm-hmm. well. So I had a lot of credentials that they respected. It was a program that really respected preve- uh, professional credentials as opposed to published work. Yeah. And so I was tenure track. I think I got tenure after you can apply generally in most programs, I think, around after your third or fourth year. Mm-hmm. So I did apply for tenure, I believe, in my around that time. So I'd only been tenured a year or so when I actually left Concordia, which mm-hmm. was pretty unheard of. Yeah, you know, I think, I must have been crazy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I want to think back on it now. And at the same time, though, you went to CBC and worked on an iconic Canadian comedy yeah, show it was called great. Kids in the Hall. Yeah. So how was that? You well, First of all, what was your position? You were the art director. Art director. Yeah. There was two art directors. Um, there was a production designer, Paul Ames, and then Doug McLean, who's another design, mm-hmm. theater designer, former theater designer, and I were both art directors. Mm-hmm. Doug did the studio portions, and I did the film portions. Oh, I see. So maybe you could, could explain, because I'm, I'm in theater. I don't have any experience in, in, uh, in film or TV. What is the role of an art director as opposed to a production designer? How do you fit into that kind of system? Well... Interestingly, on kids, it was different than traditionally. Usually on a big film, the art director is the person who actually, they're kind of like the production manager. Mm -hmm. They're the person who organizes crews, does budgeting, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. On Kids in the Hall, I was actually a designer. Mm -hmm. I was called an art director, but Doug and I designed, he designed all the studio sets along with Paul, and I designed all the, the film sets along with Paul. So Paul was overseeing all of it, but we got to do all that because it was sketch comedy right Mm -hmm. so we would churn out those sets it was crazy we would sit as soon as they figured out what the slot you know the slate was going to be for that 
uh, time of filming, um, we just sit down and we just draw like crazy, not not draft, but do drawings of, of which each, what each set would look like, mm-hmm. get Paul to approve it, and then we'd pass it on to the drafts people who would draw them up right. to be done. And it was a bit like a factory, and we'd work very late often to get that stuff out because time in film is, is money, mm-hmm. and so it's a lot of stuff that has to happen. So kids was a bit different that way. When I worked in film later, I worked as an art director on a couple of shows, but I, I really didn't enjoy it because I actually don't like organizing things. <laughs> I rather design. So I worked off, um, my preference was to work as a set designer who mm-hmm. comes under the art director. Right. So on a big uh, feature film, for example, there'll be a lot of set designers mm-hmm. and you spend your time really creating the set, but you're usually drafting it as well, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of enjoy doing. I don't mind doing that. Sure. Uh, how about uh, set decoration and uh like I guess it's just a bunch of delegation. You're coming up yeah. with the with the with the with the with the vision, mm-hmm. and then you're communicating that to other people who go out and fill in all the gaps. Yeah. Well, in in film, props and set decoration are separate. Right. Set deck is everything like curtains and the furniture and that, and props are everything the the performers yeah. deal with. So it's they're very different departments, and you don't see you work with props, but not as much as you do with set deck. Set mm-hmm. deck's a very vital part of the whole art department. Uh, thank you for indulging my ignorance. I, <laughs> That's okay. I haven't done a lot. Of, I know there's probably listeners who know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah. But um, also, I mean, I think that something you 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 might be going to ask me this now mm-hmm. is that there's a real difference in design for film than mm-hmm. for theater. Um, film is much more about going into spaces and creating architecture in a space. Uh, it, uh, I think that's probably why a lot of architects become film designers. Mm-hmm. Well, theater is much more poetic. It's much more about the script and creating abstract visions of the piece. We're working much more um, metaphorically, much more symbolically, mm-hmm. and to me is much more interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> than film. I, the big kicks I would get in film were when we would go to an empty lot and turn it into something. Right. Building buildings between two buildings that look like a real building. Right. All that kind of crazy illusion. Yeah always fascinated me in film and the, you really learn details in, detail work in film that make you a much better realistic kind of theater designer mm-hmm. so I learned a lot about building codes moldings details so in film I've, I've worked with designers I remember one show I did oh, it was oh, I can't remember what, what it was called it was folk it was called focus I think it was an Arthur Miller play mm-hmm. and they flew me down to New York for a day and I spent the entire day at this subway museum mm-hmm. Uh, measuring all the details of a subway car. And then I had to go back and reproduce the subway car. I drew it all up, and they built a subway car. It was very cool. But the designer was saying things to me like, well, you know the little gold line that they put on the paint? Is that a quarter of an inch, or is it a half an inch? Like, oh my God! Right. Film, you know, is so different. You don't worry about that in theater. That's right, because then close up, someone, someone's going to see that and go, "Oh my God! Oh, it's, it's not in right." Quarter inch, yeah. and I wrote a letter, and then today we tweet about it and blog about exactly. it, and it'd be a yeah. giant. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so, so kids in the hall in general. I mean, that's a. Uh, what was your experience working with the with the, the the cast and 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 how did you? I mean, it must have been a great place. You were on. Were you on set a lot, or was it mm-hmm. something? Yeah. Yeah. So you, well, what we did is is we'd have filming periods, or I don't know what you call it. The scripts would come down. We'd work out what the sets would look like. Then we would do all. Of, I would go off with all the film things, 
and we'd shoot them in all different kinds of locations. Then we'd have studio sets that were being built. So once the film stuff was finished with, we'd go into studio. So I was there in the studio for setup. And I would do some studio sets because sometimes there were so many. And we would have, I'm trying to remember, was it one or two live shows? And then we would do more studio work without an audience, mm-hmm. stuff that was too difficult or stuff that had you know, messed up. Right. <laughs> and uh, so that we would redo, redo all that stuff that would be all edited together. Um, and sorry, I've forgotten what your question was. Oh, uh, I was just curious about your interaction with the cast and oh, yeah. being on set and how well, was yeah. that, what was that they like? Said, yeah. <laughs> well, as they say, comedy is very serious business. Right. It, was, uh, it was tricky. The cast... The, the guys um, got along and didn't get along. They would all write set sketches, and there was a lot of contention about whose sketch was going to be picked. It was kind of funny the way it was laid out because their, their offices were a floor above us or two floors above us, and we were all on one floor, and the whole art department was right next to where the producers were. Mm-hmm. And the final decisions about things like that were made in the producer's office. So we would often be there working along very diligently, and one of the kids would go in, and then another one would go in, and the door would close, and then you'd hear sh- shouting, and then <laughs> people would really shout. I remember one, one time Dave Foley, really, a, a stream of profanity, screaming away, walked out, looked at us, and went, sorry, guys, and left. He was a very nice guy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And we had more interaction with... Um, the some of the kids directed a lot of the episodes. Dave and and Bruce directed a lot, and Mark some, did some. They they directed a lot of the episodes. Um, so we had a lot of interaction, more interaction with them than we would have with Scott and Kevin, who were didn't have as much to do with that part of things. Right. But we knew them all. It was a very small group of people, and we all got along and and uh, well, or didn't at times. But it was um, it was a nice show to work on. It was really lovely at the end of it. I was sad to see it go. Yeah. Uh, as were we all. Um, now tell me about uh, Fraggle Rock. This is uh, <laughs> part of my, uh, you know, late... Dance your cares away. Oh, my God, it's fantastic. for another day, S- let the music play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Henson Show shot yeah. in CBC in Toronto. Yeah, Studio uh, how, how did you get... Because uh, you weren't you, were, you didn't start as the art director, didn't start as a, as a designer no. on that. You, you got brought in uh, for the last season. Yes, well, right? I was a, a sort of part of, you know, an, an assistant designer at CBC, and my friend Marianne Wehack, who, who also was a theater designer, who's now a film designer, she had done Fraggle for, I think, the first three seasons, but she wanted to do her own work, and I think she was actually designing a film at that point or something, so I luckily, I, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it until you interviewed me, but I seem to have stumbled into a lot of stuff just by luck, and um, she, they needed someone to be an assistant designer. Uh, the the production designer at that point was a man named Russell Chick. So um, I came in and assisted Russell for that season. And it was it was such a good time, mm-hmm. such a great time. They, they were the most wonderful people. Yeah. And, and they've had a couple of reunions since. And, and, and I was t- saying that there's um, a YouTube thing of posted, well, several different things, but of a crew shot that we had at one point. And it was so great to go, oh, there's so-and-so, I haven't seen them. You know, the, the wonderful thing about the whole Henson crew is nobody was stuck up. Nobody, they were just regular people. Mm-hmm. And after you got over the, oh my gosh, that's Jim Henson, yes, yes. <laughs> then you just relaxed and it, you were just doing a show with people. That's right. Huh? Yeah, I'm not working with Kermit, I'm working with Jim. 
Yeah, because yeah. um, yeah, he sounds so much. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, what was your what was your role? You were you were the set designer uh, on or? Fraggle. Uh, I was just assistant. I was just a baby, a baby assistant at the yeah. time. So, maybe most of my job was running around and watching the camera with with these set deck people and putting moss on styrofoam rocks <laughs> because the way the whole thing worked, everything was elevated off yeah, the floor. Yeah. They were on these puppet stands that that were adjustable. So the entire world of Fraggle Rock was styrofoam rocks mm -hmm. that you could put to different levels and when they shot it they would set up the shot and then you had to adjust all the rocks and the big sort of tunnel rocks we had names for all of them mm -hmm. to um, to fit the shot okay. and then you had to cover a lot of it with flowers or moss or whatever the theme of the, the piece was at the time so you, I spent all my time on set on that one. And I would also do some drafting for special things. We did this one <laughs> deadly show. It was a, a water show. So we had this giant pool of water and all the poor puppeteers, they had to be under this pool with their hands in gloves. And then the puppets went on the gloves, yeah. creating this whole water sequence. We shot till, oh, I don't know, six in the morning, something like that. I finally left at six, I think. And I remember coming into the studio the next day and there was a big sign up that said, no more water shows. <laughs> it was brutal. That that one was yeah, very memorable. That's terrific. Maybe yeah. you can find that on YouTube. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, now you did, you also did actual film, actual yeah. commercial film mm -hmm. work, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Pushington is one line in your in mm. your CV, but it's mm. one of those. It's the John Cusack uh, mm -hmm. uh, air, um, air traffic controller yeah. guy. Mm -hmm. uh, did you did you work on it from beginning to end, or were you brought in? No, I was brought in. Right. There was two um, set designers on it already, and I was brought in basically because they needed someone to do all the other bits and pieces. You know, there's a lot of work. You measure locations. Mm -hmm. I was very much junior on that show, mm -hmm. but uh, it was funny. It was really nice because traditionally in Toronto, there's not that much film work um, in this in the winter time. Mm -hmm. So it was this wonderful January February gig that I got. But what was ironic is the whole point of the show is there's this giant snowstorm <laughs> that closes the airport down and they have to bring the planes in and all this and of course it was one of those winters in Toronto where there was absolutely no snow so they ended up making snow <laughs> this is like oh that's ironic yeah yeah I remember they did uh, they shot uh, Cinderella Man in my neighborhood down oh, at yeah. uh, Queen and uh, Queen and Roncesvalles Queen and oh, Carla oh. Yeah. yeah and I lived on uh, lived on uh, Degrassi or just off of Degrassi yeah and the entire it was shot in the middle of the summer in mm -hmm. August, yep. and the entire thing, they had refacaded all the buildings. It was the most magical thing to walk in the middle of, mm -hmm. in your neighborhood, right? Yeah. But I remember they shot, a, they shot a winter scene in mm -hmm. the middle of August, and yep. the whole thing was just made up, people in big woolen things oh, yeah. in the middle of August in Toronto, which must have been terrible. But that kind of magic, I feel, uh, in film you have so much more control over yes, the well, frame, right? It just reminded me of a kid's episode where we had to have winter mm -hmm. in the summer. And again, and we had to, I had to find the, like the one street in Toronto that didn't have trees on it. Right. And then we had to make snow right. and everyone had to pretend they were cold. And then of course we shot all kinds of stuff in the winter that had to look like everyone was warm. Yeah. That was um, some brutal 30 below shooting days on, on Kids in the Hall. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. Great. So let's just go back to theater for a second. I mm -hmm. want to talk about Black, uh, the Black Bill William oh, McCrimmon, oh, which yes. is one of the shows you did at Blythe, but... Um, you had actually premiered the show mm -hmm. before that, and yeah. I think we did it in Blythe in 97, uh, mm -hmm. which was a great show with um, 
uh, it's a it's a people for people who don't know the show. Uh, it's it's the it's Woolies Rink against the Devil's Rink, and yes. it's a it's a, a deal with not a deal with the devil, not a like a Faustian tale, but mm-hmm. it's along that kind of line. Yes, and they have this big battle in the second act. So so first of all, tell me about how you got uh, you, you your connection to the show originally, uh, and what it was like to work on the first production. Yeah, uh, it was a it's a W O Mitchell yes. play, right? Yeah, W O Mitchell's story. Yeah that uh, Theatre Calgary decided they wanted to make into a play. And I think I was resident resident designer at the time. And the director was a a man named Guy Sprung, Mm -hmm. who came out from Montreal to direct it. And he worked with Bill Mitchell to create the script, Mm -hmm. uh, such as it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, W.O. Mitchell was an absolutely wonderful man. He he chewed tobacco. Used to he'd, he'd have this big woolly sweater and all these like tobacco stains on the front of it. <laughs> he was chewing tobacco, and the loveliest guy. But you couldn't pin him down on anything. Mm-hmm. He'd sit in the theater and tell us all these great stories. And you go, but yeah, but what about the second act, Bill? We got to do something with the second act. Oh, you'll be fine. You know, it doesn't. <laughs> but yes, it is. It's about uh, Woolly and his uh, his very salty guy. You know, rink of guys all named Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, from Wild Rose, Alberta in the 1930s, and they're the crack curling team of all time. And one day the devil walks into Woolley's uh, shop to have his, his curling boots uh, re- resold. And um, the devil makes a deal with Woolley because he hears Woolley saying, I'd give my soul to win the McDonald Briar. Mm-hmm. And the devil comes in and goes, you got a deal, Woolley McCrimmon. <laughs> it was Michael Ball playing the devil. And so there's a bet. It's it's uh, the devil, Judas Iscariot, Macbeth, and Guy Fox are his team, and they come from hell, and they play off for the for the you know the immortal soul of Wooly, and the soul, the entire second act is a curling match. Yeah. Did you now? Did you have the curling? Uh, everyone calls you to find out how you did the yeah, curling yeah, match on stage. Yeah. Uh, I know in Blythe we had real rocks, mm-hmm. I believe. Oh yeah, uh, always you have to have real rocks. Because it doesn't look. It looks totally fake. Yeah, it, it's rocks. when they hit, right? You've right. got to have the real right. rocks. But yeah, it was interesting. I decided to put the whole thing outside. I can't remember why. I think I just thought it would look better. Mm-hmm. And um, we, what we did is we built snow banks and fencing and stuff mm-hmm. so that you could only kind of see the rocks. Mm-hmm. So you could get the sense of the rocks hurling down the rink. But the fact, the trick is that they often don't make the shot, right? <laughs> right? And you had to go, okay, let's make it so nobody can see that, that you know, the, the, the button at the end there. Mm-hmm. And the advantage of Theatre Calgary, which is the old Theatre Calgary when it was in the Allied Arts Centre, it was very wide. Mm-hmm. It was like a big letterbox. I think it was 40 feet wide, something mm-hmm. like that. So we did the entire thing on a diagonal to increase the length. It was mm-hmm. still nowhere near the length of a real curling rink. Sure. But you could actually kind of approximated and it was just you know sheets of masonite painted and then verithaned and then painted and verithaned and sanded and to with sort of an inch of their life mm-hmm. and then we um we went to I think a chemical company CIL or DuPont or something like that and the secret was silicon mm-hmm. putting it on the rocks putting it on everything we put it in there's a bit uh, part where where one of the characters waters the rink right and we put silicon in the water and you could actually slide on it yeah. But it was it was a fun thing. It was a silly silly fun show. But I have to tell you that the first time that rock went down the rink, the audience cheered, yeah. because you know they're waiting for it, right? Yeah. The whole thing's a setup, and and you know an intermission because they, they they do the first act and the bet's on, and then there's an intermission, mm-hmm. and people were coming up and kind of looking and going, how are they going to do this, right? Oh, they're going to have something fake. They're going to have rocks on wheels or something. Mm-hmm. And then that was there was that 
sliding down and that thunk kind of yeah. sound, right, of the two rocks hitting, and yeah. people cheered. It was it was great. Yeah. When that when that works in theater, it's funny how in film you take you take reality for granted, yeah. And then when it happens live on stage, people are so floored by it because they're not expecting they're yeah. expecting something so fake, and yet it can be really real. Yeah, and then it toured all through Alberta, which was crazy, because um, we, we had the tiniest stages and the largest stages. It was. <laughs> I don't know how they did it. We had, yeah, touring with curling rocks doesn't sound like yeah, a good idea. No, but they did it, and I, I never heard. I had to go around and look at a lot of the theaters to see, and we had a, a rink that had pieces that came out, right, mm-hmm. so longer or shorter. But uh, anyway, you know, it's all in the fun. That's fantastic. <laughs> and then, then you did that show several other times, right? You did, like you did not, it was, it wasn't we did just it live. We did it at Theater New Brunswick. Yeah. Yeah. Remember at Blythe, we used to have a... Um, First of all, the, uh, can I just say that the the set, which was modular, mm-hmm. because you have to have uh, you have to have Woolies Shop, uh, and then there's an outdoor version of Woolies Shop, and then there's the rink, and yeah. uh, and and the devil has to disappear to <laughs> down to hell, has to oh, be a trap door. Yeah. Oh, it's got um, a lot of yeah. it's a, a lot, lot of tricks. tricks. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And uh, we used to um, uh, we used to take bets because I was running the show at that point. We used to take bets how long it would take Cliff Saunders, who who was playing pipe fitting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long it would take him to leave Willie's shop after his last line in the first act. Uh, it's very first scene. He comes in, he has a little interaction, and then the devil comes in and interrupts them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he interrupts He interrupts the devil, and he, then he has to exit. And he would take a minute, a minute and a half with all these pratfalls and plunger yeah. tricks. <laughs> <Yes>. And it was <laughs> yeah. just the most incredible thing. But the, but the set was um, on a stage that is really just, what, oh, 18 so feet wide and 12 Frustrate, feet Most deep. frustrating thing about Blythe. Oh. But and yet the show looked enormous, mm. right? Um, uh, and I think that's a testament to s- your ability to, to to scale things properly. And, and it just looked beautiful. Uh, I think that the I think the set. I think there's probably pictures on the Blythe. Uh, well, I will try I to find some photographs. I don't think I have photos of that one. I have photos of another production at Theatre New Brunswick. Well, you know what would be great if you could if you could forward that to me. We'll put them on mm-hmm. the. We'll put them in the little. Oh, that's true. Yeah, thing. that would we be good. We can put them on the website so people yeah. can see it. Uh, it is quite a thing. And if you're if you're doing Black Bunch, Bill William McCrimmon. <laughs> yeah, you know who to call, <laughs> call folks. Pat Flynn for <laughs> yeah, how to do right. the curling rocks. Uh, I remember they were they were rehearsing above the offices at Blythe, and so uh, all you heard all day was slam <laughs> when, when they were trying to practice with the actual real curling rocks above. Oh, dear. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great. So uh, um, tell me about uh, what's next. Any other kind of big shows that you, would, that you did in the eighties? And well, let's. Well, I think it's probably good to talk about our country's good, yeah. um, because you now you you've got a quite uh, you're teaching under your belt. You've done the, you've done film, you've done TV, you've done a whole bunch of theater, and now you leave the country for the first time to go uh, to Ireland, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's interesting because I think we'll get into this at some point. But I, I've always found it ironic about my career <laughs> is that the place I've worked most is is like the Blythe Festival, mm-hmm. is a place that does fairly quote-unquote realistic work mm-hmm. although I, I said you know I've managed to work at Blythe for many 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 years without ever having to do a box set mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's odd though because you know we talk about black bonds bill that kind of thing because I've never thought that realism or naturalism was particularly my forte or was particularly interesting mm-hmm. So it is kind of interesting that I've ended up with so many shows or being associated with the theater that tends to do more of that kind of thing. Uh, our country's good, I think, 
was an important show for me because it allowed me to, that and, and a production of Uncle Vanya that I also did at the Centaur, both of them allowed me to do much more of my, what I think is more my forte as a designer is, is really kind of creating simple sets, clean sets that, you know, or it's not even a set, it's a world, it's, you know, a context, a world that, that sort of responds to what the piece is about. And, and uh, I was really proud of that design. It ended up being very simple. Um, I remember actually when I was doing it, I called Peter Hartwell, who'd originally done the, the production in, in uh, England at the Royal Court. And he, I remember him saying to me, something about, just be careful you don't do a heavy metaphor or something. And I thought, what is he talking about? Because <laughs> I didn't even think like that, right? But I guess there is a sort of school of design thought where you think of it like, I don't know, they're all trapped, so it's a big birdcage or something. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. I don't know how that works. Um, and I thought, oh, how interesting. I never would have occurred to me. Um, the set that I did was just a very simple piece of, I don't know, hard to, hard to describe on, on a podcast, uh, but it, sort of an angled platform that was all sort of wood and and three curtains that moved around on a big curtain track and became curtains and houses became the big tent that they're in became trees uh, it was simple and, and very effective uh, the lighting originally done by Louise Guinon I, I believe she did the first production that I did at Centaur where we had just a black scrim with a painted drop behind but it, it ended up being extremely magical because of the way the drop she lit it and it changed and became many different things and it was a simple show it was really a success it was directed by a man named Joe Dowling who had come over from Ireland to direct it and we did it again at Neptune in Halifax because it had been such a, a success and one day the phone rang I was actually on my way to Australia <laughs> and the phone rang and it was Joe calling from Ireland and he said We've just had a show cancelled here at the gate where I'm working, and I want to do our country's good, and I've told them the only way I'll do it is if you, you come over and design it. And I thought, wow, how wonderful that is. Mm -hmm. So they brought me over to, to work at the gate, and I only did the set. They had a, an Irish uh, costume designer, which was great. It was nice to have another designer as part of it. And the gate is is um, a fairly well-established theatre in, in Dublin. It's kind of the maybe the Abbey alternative, I don't know. Sure. It's known a lot for its productions of Samuel Beckett. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting to me is that it's brought in a lot of designers from different countries. Mm -hmm. And I was treated really well there. What The most interesting part of it was they expected I was an international designer. I wasn't little Pat Flood coming from, from Canada. Mm -hmm. But they just said, well, have you ever designed in Japan? Or have you ever, you know, have you done anything at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden or whatever? And because a lot of the designers who came through just did that. Mm -hmm. And it was really wonderful to be in that, that kind of world because you started to think of yourself differently. Mm -hmm. And you would think, well, why not? Because I realized... We do have a Canadian inferiority complex, which I've always fought against. Yes. No, we don't. No, we don't. Mm -hmm. We're just as good as everyone else. But for the first time, I realized that within myself, I had that. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly something, you know, when you sent me the list of questions you might want to ask me, to talk about flops and what you learn from flops mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And it's certainly... You know, that plus a, a production I did at Stratford Festival, because I'd been an assistant there for many, many years... Mm -hmm. And then they hired me to design two gentlemen of Verona. 
And it was probably one of my most disastrous shows. <laughs> I was trying to do punk before punk kind of came to Canada. Uh-huh. No one knew what was going on. Uh, the director changed his idea halfway through oh, no. and wanted to do it differently because Lorena McKennett was doing the music. Uh-huh. And he suddenly wanted it to be this kind of more soft piece, whereas I'd done people with mohawks and painted faces and crazy stuff. And I had a lot of the staff, the, you know, the technical people at Stratford look at me going, what is this ugly stuff, right? John Hirsch said, but it's all rags. I don't understand. Why would you want to put rags on our actors? <laughs> and I didn't have the confidence to stand up for myself. Right. And I remember David Walker, who was a, a wonderful designer who worked there at the time, one point just stopping me in one of the halls and saying, the only thing you can do ultimately as a designer is stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. Just stick to your guns because it's, it's, it's who you are, it's what you've got. And, and if you don't stay with what you're doing, you, you have nothing else. Mm-hmm. And he, it was such good advice. And it wasn't, I think, until I then later got to the, the gate and was treated like an international designer, that I really kind of came into my own and realized, yes, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And my work was of that quality. That, that No one questioned it. It was, of course, you know, you're an international designer, and you, we've, we've brought you over from Canada yeah. to do this. It was like, oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> right? So that was a, a great learning experience for me. Hi there, I'm interrupting briefly to thank those 12 of you, including Carla Arose, Liz Campbell, and Aaron Birkenbergs, who all supported the $5 level, for supporting the title block on Patreon.com. I really enjoy doing the show, and I'm, I'm not going to stop while I have the time, but it does cost a bit to do the show, between equipment and web hosting, not to mention extra mic rentals to ensure that special events like the bellows sound as best as I can make them, even when I don't. So I'm asking that you help to cover those costs and help me to continue to capture the story of Canadian theatre design. Go to patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. Now, back to my interview with designer Pat Flood. Uh, any other kind of big uh, shows before we get into the more present stuff? Well, I, I think for me, just a, you know, a lot of good, interesting productions. I want, was able to work on a production of Uncle Vanya I was very proud of. But I went into film. Mm-hmm. And so the film the film work, working with Adam McGoyan. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's um, a great... I, I want to talk about yeah. that. Yeah, because you've done a number of his shows, right? Ararat and another... Uh, just the two, Ararat and... and uh, the, where the truth lies. Yes, that's right. Okay, so tell me yeah. about that. How, first of all, how did you get hired? What was your experience and how did you approach it? Um, since th- at this point, this is one of the few th- times it sounds like mm-hmm. that you're starting from the beginning. You're able to sort of shape. You're not coming into an already established thing or you're not, you weren't assisting on it. Is that right? No, I was a set designer. You were a set designer. Okay, yeah. great. So tell me about the experience. Um, yeah, so, well, I had actually been working as a, an art director and set designer for a while. Mm-hmm. Before that, I and, and at CBC, but then I'd done. I was art director. I did a, the last season of La Femme de Kida, oh, shows right. like that, yeah. and you know the the time on Kids in the Hall, mm-hmm. and so I, I had by that time knew quite a few people, and um, Kathleen Climey, who was the art director for uh, working with Atom on um, another show, said we're doing this new show called Ararat. Mm-hmm. And we have a production, new production designer named Philip Barker, and um, we'd li- he'd like to meet new people. 
and, and work, work with new people, so do you want to come in? So I met Philip and really liked him, really got on with him, and they hired me to work on the show. It's about the Armenian genocide, and something I had never known anything about. You know, we all know about the Holocaust, but the sort of what happened to the Armenians um, was equally horrible. And so I was hired to design a lot of the sets with, with Philip, again, as the production designer. But it was wonderful to work with him because he gave me a lot of free reign mm-hmm. on, on the stuff that we did. Um, and we did, we built the whole town of Van, where there's the sort of the escape from Van is, is sort of a similar part of it on Cherry Beach in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And that was that was one of those great. Oh wow, this is really cool. And we had a, another um, designer named Emir Gelio, who was actually a Bosnian and knew that world very well. So <laughs> Emir and I became very good friends and spent a lot of time arguing. And he would say, "No, no, it would never be like that. They wouldn't do this." Like, "Yeah, but it's already built. We can't change it now." Right. You know, like, "We'll just change the hinges. We'll do something here." You know, and and uh, but it was great because he was able to add a, a level of authenticity to it as well. Mm-hmm. But we built that, and, and it's you know funny thing about film. The one of the actors wasn't available at a certain time to to shoot the sequences, things in sequence. Mm-hmm. So there's a big scene when they burn the town of Van when people are escaping. But we had to actually shoot that first. Mm-hmm. So we had to build the entire thing, do all the burnt stuff, and then we had to clad it over right. with the unburnt stuff. Right. <laughs> so and then take it off later, right? Or no, put it on. We we shot it and then we put it back back on. So that was a fun thing. And and then there really is nothing like being on a film and being creating these worlds in a real world. I remember I just thinking when I, I did this show called Home Fires, which is an early CBC show, but there was um, it was took place during the Second World War, mm-hmm. and I remember one night we were filming in in this Polish Legion hall or something, and there was a big dance going on, and everyone it was like the you know, like a soldiers you know, coming back, having a big dance while they were on furlough. Mm-hmm. And at the, we were just taking a break, and all the guys were sitting there in their uniforms, and the girls were in, in their you know, 40s clothing. Mm-hmm. And you would swear the the band was playing in the background. You would swear you were in the 40s. We were mm-hmm. all sitting on a fire escape. And it was just really t- like time travel. It was beautiful. That's yeah. And and then I continued to work with, with um, Adam McGoyan on the next film, which was... Um, where the truth lies. Uh, now I said I worked with Adam McGoin. You know, I, I I knew him. He you know he came he would come into the art department. We would show him the things. He's he's a, a lovely man. And and when you work, it's, there's a real difference working on a Canadian film as opposed to an American film. Uh, aside from my Fraggle Rock experience, where they were fabulous people, the uh, a lot of American films are very much let's just shoot it. Come you know let's get it done. Get out of here kind of thing, uh, and. Actually, I remember someone saying that they often refer to us as Mexicans in sweaters, right. Canadians as Mexicans in sweaters. But working on a Canadian film, there's a much nicer sense of togetherness. I also worked on Slings and Arrows. I wanted to talk which, about that as well because that is sort of an iconic theater. Yeah, uh, a fabulous show. Show, and yeah. I, I, I have not. I've, I've seen maybe one episode. I haven't been able because uh, to to sort of find the rest of it. But uh, it is. Uh, not an airing of dirty laundry, but it is kind of like a fictionalization of what happens. In oh Stratford, yeah, we uh, right? the first episode I show my students all the time. I say, look, this is this is real. Yeah. All of this is real, and I, I owe all of that to Kathleen Climey again, both uh, the Yatamagoyan and and uh, Slings and Arrows, because I'm, in both cases she was the production designer for for Slings and Arrows and just brought me in for a few episodes. 
to, to work on. They, they were doing a production of uh, the Scottish play, mm -hmm. and they needed a set model, and they needed someone who actually could design a theatre set. Mm -hmm. So she said, oh, I know just the person. Yes. I'll bring in Pat Flynn. <laughs> so it was great. So I got, I got to do that. It was, I think, the second season mm -hmm. when they did, we did that one. And then we did this other crazy thing about uh, it was uh, Calm Fior playing this, this mad advertising executive guy so we, we had to create his world as well so that that was really fun but in both cases uh, you know, that kids in the hall with working with Adam McGoy and such a wonderful sense of community and support mm -hmm. and people weren't just numbers mm -hmm. he really created a wonderful atmosphere and and, it, and and where the truth lies was was really fun because we shot it in partly in England partly in Los Angeles and partly in Toronto and I remember Adam saying it's great we're going to go down and we're going to change all the street signs in LA to Toronto signs <laughs> just for just for a change because I did this other show called the new ghost writer mystery series mm -hmm. And it was an American company. It was, it was CBS and Children's Television Network. And we had to take, we shot it in sort of the junction area of Toronto. And we would show up on, on the streets about 6, 6.30 in the morning. And the first hour and a half was spent changing all the street signs and putting garbage on the street so it looked more like New York. That's nice. <laughs> One time we put all the garbage out and we'd left it the night before because we were shooting. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the garbage collectors came and picked it all up. And it was all our prop garbage. <laughs> welcome anyway, to Canada. Welcome we to Canada. Up. We clean up. Yeah, we yeah. clean up after you. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's move into um, uh, more of a philosophy question sure. as well, and then we can get into the teaching stuff. So um, is there anything special? We, we've, I've spoken a number of times with a number of designers about uh, their own design philosophy and their approach to doing theatre, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it tends to be all basically the same kind of structure based on the script and discussions with the director and doing their own research. Uh, is there anything um, uh, that you feel that you do uh, that is different from that or that is that you do that is your own sort of special way of finding your way into a piece? Um, uh, or is it really just a standard, you know, Oh, okay. I would say that more and more I have found a lot of designers nowadays feel that their job is somehow to execute what the director wants, mm -hmm. which you think, well, isn't it? <laughs> is that your job? Mm -hmm. Uh it's, but to me, it's to work as a co-director. Mm -hmm. I know there are directors now who really design the show as well, mm -hmm. and they would rather work with someone who could execute things well technically. Mm -hmm. I, as a designer, feel that my job is to take what the, where the director's going and work just as closely with the director and the actors as I do with the technical people. Mm -hmm. That I remember Gina Wilkinson, we were talking about her, the wonderful, wonderful Gina Wilkinson, mm -hmm. who died far too young. Mm -hmm. That she was, I, w I did a show with her at Blythe. I was really lucky to do a show with her. And she was so surprised that I would show up at rehearsals mm -hmm. and talk to her about stuff. And she said, Well, I'm not used to this. Like, aren't you in the shop? And I said, Well, of course I'm in the shop, but I want to know how rehearsal went. Mm -hmm. how, how, how are the characters working? Is the set working for you? I spent a lot of time, especially at that one, it was called The Eyes of Heaven by Beverly Cooper. And when they were in the initial stages, it was a new piece again, I went into the, their readings and I laid out you know, a, a possible floor, a possible way that it could, could work. Mm -hmm. And that was a surprise to her, that a designer would want to be involved at that level. But I said, well, I've been working in Blythe. I know that Things are going to be rewritten. Things are going to change. So I want to be part of the dramaturgy. Mm -hmm. And I know there are designers who do this, that 
being part of how the show is shaped is so important because we are a visual language and an oral language as well, right? And we are so much a part of how we communicate to an audience. You don't, don't go to the theater to, to, to hear. You go to see a play, right? Right, right, right. And that was, that was a Cameron Porteous quote, but it's true. Yeah. And it... Uh, it's it's so important to do that, and 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 my students don't don't realize that either. They I say to them, okay, think about Hamlet. You have to have a castle for Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Well, there's about a million different castles in the world. So how do you decide what kind of castle it is, mm-hmm. or is it a castle at all? Mm-hmm. You know, my my favorite joke is, um, you know, how many designers does, does it change take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, well, does it have to be a light bulb, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. And so how do you decide? A, a, you know, a technician will go, okay, well, I can do castles. I can do concrete. I can do, you know, I can do trees. I've got this great way to make trees. I can do styrofoam rocks. I can do anything for you. But who des- how do you decide? Well, you decide by what the piece is about. Because mm-hmm. there's a Hamlet castle, but there's, you know, and there's a Walt Disney castle. They're very different. Yeah. And what is a castle anyway? It's a seat of power. Is the play about power? Yes. So what, how do you embody the power in that world that you create? Mm-hmm. And that's the fun about being a designer, is that you create worlds. Mm-hmm. Whether your costumes, your setting, your lighting, your sound, they all create a world that, that then the actors enhance, the actors can create with. Mm-hmm. So we're all part of that team. And it's funny, one of the things I really learned about teaching in Montreal and at Concordia, is I was there from 1986 to 1992, which was really very much a golden age of, of theatre in Montreal, I think. Theatre companies like Carbon 14, mm-hmm. for example, and, and Usince, which was then created there. I saw wonderful, wonderful work. Mm-hmm. Things at the Théâtre Nouveau Monde um, that I had never thought about theater that way before Mm -hmm. and it was very eye-opening for me and I always make the joke that I had English and French students that I taught Mm -hmm. and I would always have to say to the the French students oh wow it's amazing it looks fabulous but what has it got to do with the play and with the English students I'd say okay you're being very true to the script but can you push it a little bit? You know, just because it says there's a, a castle or there's a counter or there's this, you don't actually have to have it, you know. Okay. You can, what's this play about? Mm-hmm. What's the meaning in this piece? Where, do, where are we going? How does what you're doing visually reflect what this play is saying, what the playwright's saying? And I think sometimes in English Canada, we have too much reverence for the script. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> and now I can see Judith Thompson bursting through my door. <laughs> um, but... Of course you respect the script, yeah. but it's only one element yeah. of the piece. And you have to take every play back to when the play was first written. And again, that was that Blythe experience, mm-hmm. to know what the initial ideas were, why they made that decision. Why, why is Act 2 the way it is? Why is that scene here? Why isn't it here? Mm-hmm. Was there another character that got written out? Or is there a through line? That, that one of my old teachers used to call it pattern re- recognition. Mm-hmm. One of the patterns that go through. It's not making sense here, because we're going through this, but all of a sudden this is stopped. Why is it stopped? Why doesn't it repeat? Or, you know, what, what's happening? So that those are always really important things as, as a designer to think about. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, I had a discussion with uh, Steve Lucas back mm-hmm. in September, and that was at the beginning. Uh, it, it was uh, after the first premiere uh, I th- was it Banana Boys at the factory? Which, oh, which Banana is the Boys first was great. Great show, but, but it's the first. It's the, it was the first play in their naked season 
where they sort oh, of Oh, he scaled, saw that version. Yes. Yeah. They mm-hmm. scaled back. And Banana they, Boys has never been a busy, a big set, though. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and they made some good court. I mean, Crackwalker is part of that whole sequence yeah. now. And uh, yeah. uh, they did a whole, the whole season's been uh, sort of pared back and focusing on the script and the words and the actors. Um, they may, they have all their own reasons for doing that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they're, that there's they're missing something for, by by excluding those elements or by making them by making a choice to make the season very minimalist. Well, I haven't seen them, mm-hmm. which is sad for me because I actually I was a factory subscriber sure. because when I saw the season I thought oh I want to see this yeah. I just haven't had time I'm going to Crackwalker mm-hmm. I've seen Banana Boys a couple of times and I suspect it was very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends on the show. I always say that one of my favorite quotes is from Peter Brooks, The Empty Space. You know, mm-hmm. I can take any space and call it a theater, mm-hmm. and all that takes is for one, I forget the exact quote, for, an, uh, for is one person to walk across that space whilst another is watching them for an act of theater to be created or engaged, I think he says. And I, I think that's a really good way to train designers. Mm-hmm. Start with empty. Start with your audience and actor relationship. You're, you're part of that. You don't have to assume that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what are you assuming? Um, and start start with what can you add then? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just sound we need here. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the sound of the floor and how people move on that floor. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't need much more. So I think it is always really important to, to pair back. Mm-hmm. The thing that all, I always say to my students, too, that makes me crazy is when the curtain opens at a piece of theater and the audience applauds. Mm-hmm. What are they applauding? <laughs> or they'll say to me, "Oh, wow, look at that cool set." And I'll say, "Well, how do you how do you know it's a good set? How do you know it's a good set? You don't know until you've seen the play." Mm-hmm. Because the only way a design works, set, costumes, light, sound is during the the two, two and a half, three hours of a play. Yeah. And that's what's frustrating to me because a lot of people think it's the costume designs mm-hmm. or the models. The set models, of course, they would because they're the artifacts that are left over, mm-hmm. but they don't have the life of the play mm-hmm. as part of them anymore. And and they think that that's really just what we do, is, is that. But we're creating moments in time. Yeah. I agree. When, when Sean Kerwin, when I was asking Sean Kerwin about, uh, about production photos, mm-hmm. uh, this may have been in the middle of the interview, but I think it was afterwards, she doesn't keep production photos mm. because to her, or she doesn't have a lot of them, because yeah. to her, they don't tell the story. Mm-hmm. The story needs to have... A, a four-dimensionality yeah. to it, right? That's why and a lot of us storyboard shows too, right? Mm-hmm. See how they move through time and space. You have to, because it's it's you can't conceive of set without lighting, sound. It, it's it's. I think a lot of us think in terms of that as like a sonographer, as a or production mm-hmm. designer, and that you, you, one one element is part of another element. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's frustrating sometimes when it's divided up and there's several different designers. Mm-hmm. I think that originally came from a, kind of an American musical thing. Right. Where the thing time was money again. Yeah. I, I personally love working with other designers. Uh, I did a recently did a show at Theatre Calgary with a wonderful lighting designer, and that was great just to have him there mm-hmm. as, as part of it. You know, mm-hmm. his name was Jason Hand, and he was did a wonderful, yeah. wonderful job. And, and and just have that other designer there going. Well, don't you think? No, wait a minute. You designed that. Shouldn't we have that? You put you, like I had real lighting instruments on the set. He said, "There's only a couple on the set. Why is that? Oh, well, you know the union and time. And well, no, we have to have them. We have to have them. Good for you. Thank you, Jason. You know. <laughs> and uh, so it's nice to have the support often with, of other designers. But at the same time, I think as a designer, you have to think about. The, you have to design the whole the whole thing. Yeah. 
Uh, and how do you find yourself negotiating those things with other with, with in a collabor- collab- collab- collaboration like that? Like, what happens if the costume designer uh, has an idea that's bigger than yours, or, or the concept is mm-hmm. uh, they've got a vision of the show that's different? Um, you know, and honestly, I've never had that situation. Yeah. I guess I've just been lucky to work with a lot of really empathetic designers mm-hmm. on the same wavelengths, whatever. Uh, I usually design sets and costumes for my shows, mm-hmm. so maybe that makes it a bit easier. Yeah. Um, but no, it's always been, I guess, if it, it would happen, the director would negotiate that, mm-hmm. maybe. But we've always kind of all gotten along mm-hmm. with that, and, and you know where to step back. If they've got a better idea, well, more power to them. That's great. Okay. Um, are there any themes? I know that uh, theater design is very plastic in that, uh, you know, you can go from show to show and never repeat an idea. But there are some <laughs> designers who have, uh, who are more, I call them auteurs, or they've got, a, they've got a, a, an approach um, where you can pick out their shows. At one point, uh, Astrid Jansen had a lot of she was in love with wire mesh mm. and so she did three or four shows over a period of uh you know two two or three years that and they all had wire mesh in them you go mm. well that's an astral dancing show um or uh jim plaxton show with his black box kind of thing yeah uh that he does so well uh have you ever had anything like that or do you really just try to start with a blank shape uh, a blank um page and and go from there i'm just looking at my set models we're sitting in my office and i'm looking at all the set models <laughs> sitting around um no, I don't think I have. Although, <laughs> I think I went through a period where I was painting things brown a lot. Right. <laughs> but that wasn't necessarily a good thing. Right. <laughs> um, but no, I do try to start from... I, I feel that sets often have a kind of a, new, a neutrality to them, in, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, to step back a bit. I don't like sets that kind of take over. I don't like those ones that get applause. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I certainly admire them sometimes. Sure. Um, no, fascinatingly enough. I don't think there's anything like that because I guess I start with a play. Mm-hmm. What does the play mean and how can I bring that to life? Mm-hmm. So going to the Hamlet thing, what kind of a castle is it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, what about uh, approaching the play you've done in the past again? So, for example, mm-hmm. Bonspiel. So you did it originally, mm-hmm. and you're the tour. So those things are connected. You have to have yeah. you have to have different solutions for touring than you have in a in a in a in a play that's not touring. But um, what about remounting it with a mm-hmm. different director and looking at the script again? How um, do you go back and rely on the original choices, or do you try to? Oh, I try as much as I can to change it. Yeah. It's it's ironic. This this is a just happened recently. It was the same director. We did um, this play called Dear Johnny Dear mm-hmm. by Ken Cameron at Blythe, and mm-hmm. it was a very successful show. So Theater Calgary picked it up, mm-hmm. and it it was fascinating. I wonder how many other designers find that they actually realize what they should have done for their design mm-hmm. just about first dress. Right. <laughs> you know, you work on it, work on it, work, on it, and then you sit there in dress rehearsal and you go oh, man, this is how I should have done it. Why didn't I see that? And that one was interesting that way because the original set, we Eric Coates was directing it, and I had really just seen something black. And then as the music played and the stories came out, that it would kind of create itself. Mm-hmm. 
And somehow that evolved into we just used some barn board and kept it very, very, very simple. And I, you know, I made the joke. I'm, you know, I've been at Blythe for how many years, and I'm finally doing a set with barn board. Ah, that's right. So it took me that long, 20 years, to do a set with barn board. And then when Theatre Calgary picked it up, Theatre Calgary is a huge space. And uh, Dennis Garnum, who's the artistic director, said, look, I want a big show because it's a Canadian musical and and the the audience pays for a musical. They want their money's worth. And actually, this reminds me, we should talk about Banana Boys in a minute. But the audience wants their money's worth. And so I I want it big. Like, let's really do it. So we had an elevator in the set and we had a two-story, big, huge barn and, you know, Johnny's space that became many different spaces. And as a set, it looked great on the stage and it was really, really worked well for the piece. It didn't take away from it, uh, but it, it added a lot of dimension that to it. We had a big, there was a big, the big conceit of that is there's a grand piano in the center of the stage and everybody thinks it looks like a tractor at the beginning, right? Because you think, dear Johnny, dear, it's going to be about a tractor. And then, of course, they pull all the stuff away and it's a grand piano and we take we'll go on from there. But it was really interesting, uh, just about dress rehearsal, first dress, I sat there and I remembered I had sent Eric when we did the remount a picture of a storm coming over the prairies. And I said, somehow I think this is the, this is the show for me, just the prairies and a storm. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of got caught up in, well, it's got to be a big show, a big show, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, if I had that show to do again, it would be the prairies with maybe, you know, a car buried in the, the sod and maybe some farm equipment and stuff around, part of a house and a big sky. That's how I think I'd really do that show. And so maybe I'll get a chance to do it again. I don't know. But, but just to, to go back to Banana Boys, when you were talking about it, it reminded me, because I've been teaching a lot, and my students... When I first started teaching here at, at the University of Guelph, we take, in one of our classes, we take them to see plays. So we'd gone to the Shaw Festival to see a play, and um, the students, I was so surprised, because we go on these horrible old yellow school buses, sure, right? Yeah. And they'd all shown up in their finest, right? All the girls had tons of makeup on, and some had sparkles on their clothes, and I thought, okay, this is these kids are used to going to Sean Stratford with their parents, right? And they, they got there, they went to the bar like old hands, you know, they, were, they knew what they were doing, and they saw the show, and it was it was a Ken McDonald uh, design, this big sort of sort of spinning pink seashell. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was You Never Can Tell was yes. the play. And uh, the students, oh, that was so cool. I really, really, really liked all this. And then we went to see Banana Boys. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it was, I think, the second production. It was in the backspace at Factory. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is pre-renovation mm-hmm. Factory. And it was a big, long, black room. And they went in, and there was nothing on stage. There was just a stage and, and us in the audience. And we were, we were the audience that night, except maybe four people who were the poor people who weren't. And uh, Nina, because she's a graduate of, of Guelph, Nina Aquino, who directed the show, she had the actors sort of, they come on stage and they have some beer on the on the front of the stage and they're talking about the hot chicks at Guelph and all this kind of stuff. And then the setting was basically this kind of uh, a stretcher, um, mobile stretcher on wheels, and, and this window unit that revolved. And the students were blown away by it because they had never seen a show where one thing became several things. They had never seen that kind of level of magic where everything wasn't solved for them. This is another design philosophy, right? Give them a hint. Don't give it all to them. And they just, oh my gosh, that's the best play I've ever seen in my life. That was awesome. But they'd also never seen anything like my Blythe experience that was about them. 
And it was so important. I was so happy that I, I, you know, I had brought them to see that. And it, it gets back to that idea of, of design. Don't, don't show them too much. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a wonderful film. Um, it's about Alice Little. And it was done, actually, with the Henson's Creature Workshop. It's about her touring North America, talking about Charles Dodson and what it was like to know Lewis Carroll. And I forget the name of the the piece, but it's about her life. And through her life, she's in an apartment hotel, I think, somewhere in New York. And she goes out on the balcony and the Mad Hatter's Tea Party is happening. And all these sort of fanciful things happen as, as... the show goes on, but she's a very proper aristocratic, quite quite aristocratic uh, Victorian woman. Mm-hmm. And they ask her, and they say, "Well, Miss Little, what advice would you give to young people for reading?" And she says, "Well, they must sit in a proper chair, one that is good for their spine and keeps them proper posture, and they must have a reading lamp that helps them, you know, doesn't strain their eyes." So they can see the page very clearly, but not so clearly that there aren't shadows in the room. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, this is theater. This is design. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have shadows. You've got to have that space for imagination where the audience can take little little bits and then they can participate. You know, don't give it to them all. Uh, I've used this quote, I think, uh, earlier on in the in the in the in the episodes uh, for the title blog. But um, uh, it struck me I was reading a Robert Edmund Jones. Uh, oh yes, uh, dramatic imagination. Yeah, maybe dramatic imagination. Mm-hmm. And he insisted that a set must look incomplete mm-hmm. without an actor on it. Mm-hmm. So you can't. You have to give people space. Yeah. To imagine space for the actor to imagine space for the audience to imagine is very important and a sense of expect uh, he says a sense of occasion i think right you know but expectant something's going to happen right mm-hmm. you choose a few things on the stage and then what's going to happen yeah right yeah exactly mm-hmm. that's terrific okay so you you found your way to guelph Yes. How did that? How did that happen? Well, first of all, when did it happen, and then how did you yeah. find your way here? <laughs> really, it was by chance again. It's nuts. I'd, it's all chance. Boys and girls, <laughs> just just throw it out there to the universe. And I was very tired of doing film. Fourteen-hour days. I was getting older, and I was looking to teach. And I happened to be on a train, going to Montreal with a, a, another designer I knew. And I said, you know, I'd really like to teach again. I. I think I've got something to offer. And, and really, it's about time us old farts you know, rolled over and gave some space for the younger designers to do their work. And he said, you know, Guelph's looking for somebody. And I thought, Guelph? The University of Guelph? Yeah, I know they have a theater department because I'd had a fellow named Alan Watts who'd assisted me at Stratford. And I'd been there to see a couple of shows. And I thought, that's so perfect. It's not Toronto, but it's close to Toronto, so I can keep all my friends. Maybe I can even still live in Toronto. And I could go there. Well, it doesn't hurt to apply. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, I applied and I was shortlisted. And then I came for an interview. I had, I thought, oh, I haven't got it. I'm sure I haven't got it. I didn't think it had gone particularly well. And they called me and offered me the job. And it's been great. It's a wonderful hidden little gem here, the University of Guelph. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows about it. Mm-hmm. We keep putting signs up. You know, here we are at <laughs> MUU. We do have a theater department. I don't know if you saw the big banner outside, you know, mm-hmm. theater at Guelph. Um, I've created this sort of performing arts wing with production photos and that, and and just um, and it's a very vibrant, lively. It's a BA, mm-hmm. so it's not a BFA, and it's um, 
a more well-rounded program. When I taught at Concordia, it was very much a conservatory type. Students come in with a portfolio. You have to, you know, have to be screened to get in. Every year we had portfolio reviews. Some people were dropped from the program. Uh, very intense. Here, it's, it took me a bit of adjusting because I'm used to being in a fine arts faculty and I'm used to saying, okay, let's get your paints out. Let's start working. Here it was, my first day I was lecturing on theater. <laughs> lecturing, I never lectured in my life. Oh my gosh. I found out soon enough though, the students hate lectures anyway, so it's, it's better just not to lecture and to talk to them um, and let them do some of the work. But uh, here the students do all kinds of things. It's, it's a, a program, the students who have graduated, who I've kind of polled, have told me that they, what they like most about this program is they get to do everything. Mm -hmm. So you can star in a show, the next show you're the stage manager, the next show you're building the set. You get, it's very, it has a strong academic side to it as well, so there's theory courses. Mm -hmm. Some, a lot of students have gone on to do their MA and their PhD. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple of students at National Theatre School now who went on to become in acting, one's, at, one's in the playwriting program. But definitely after a BA, you, do, you have to, you, you know, you do something else as well. Although several students have gone on and, and after their BA and, and formed their own theater companies. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things they do teach here is it's a small program and it's how to create your own theater. Mm -hmm. How to get out there and do, be able to do everything. Yeah. So, you know, they, they've, they've done it. And then a lot of them go on for further training, as I think a lot of students do now. We were lucky enough. I did a BFA. I did an MFA or tried to do an MFA at Minnesota, but I, I didn't finish it. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to live in a time when there was lots of work. Work's a lot harder to get now. Yeah. So being an entrepreneur, being someone who can create your own theater company mm -hmm. is really important, I think, for graduate students to learn. And, and we've just put in a new curriculum where we're helping them a lot with that, I'm hoping. We've got a whole fourth-year course about called Theater Culture and Organization. Like, how do you actually get a job? How do you write a grant? Sure. But also we have a course in second year, like just devised theater, creating devised theater. And then their fourth year um, capstone course is, is, is devised piece. Um, well, sometimes it's written one acts. It's like a play festival. Mm -hmm. It's their own little sort of mini fringe festival right. that they do. So, you know, training them that way mm -hmm. with those sort of skills. Yeah. Uh, when you look back, uh, we, we, we touched a bit on, uh, on the lip grants and the, and, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, and the real possibilities of just doing whatever you could or whatever yeah. you wanted to back in the 70s. When you compare that time to this time, uh, I know it's hard to say one is better or one is worse, but do you feel like there are too many challenges now? Do you feel like it's creating better artists? Do you feel like, uh, like how, when you compare the two mm -hmm. environments, um, which one would you rather live in? Now, that's a tricky question. Uh, certainly... I'd still rather go back, I think, mm -hmm. because there was so much opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think in either environment, the cream rises to the top. Mm -hmm. The hard part about now is rents in the bigger cities are so expensive. Mm -hmm. So some of my students, they've stayed in Guelph and are doing their own. We've now got a Guelph Fringe Festival that's yeah. starting. Yeah. Another company, a little company that they formed called People House. Mm -hmm. And because they just can't make it in a city where there's that much competition and your rent is exorbitant. Mm -hmm. That's the difference, is we didn't have to, well, we didn't earn that much money, but then we didn't have to pay that much either. So I, I think it's, I honestly think it's tougher, even though there's more opportunity. But that said, people 
people find the work. I, th- I think the work is better. I think it's way better now mm-hmm. than it was. I, I think theater's alive and well and thriving in Toronto. Mm-hmm. But the number of good shows, I think there's a lot more mm-hmm. <laughs> than there were before. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we spent a lot of time doing pretty bad stuff. <laughs> I, I hate to say it. I was there, but we did. Okay. <laughs> I, I always found that there's a philosophy... Um, when I was first uh, working in the new buddy space, yeah. uh, they were trying to do every. They were trying to squeeze every last minute out of the theater. And the first few years they were there, it was a new space. It was right. built for them. It was use it, use really it, yeah. interesting. Yeah, like put don't like do it as non traditional as you want. Use yeah. the balcony. Use the thing, the trap, yeah. everything else. Uh, and they also jam packed. Um, uh, because they had the opportunity with their own space that was big and could c- accommodate a lot of a, f- a broad range of shows, mm-hmm. they also jam packed a lot of shows in there, and yeah. so there were one or two really quite great pieces, mm-hmm. maybe three, and then f- you know four or five, meh, you know, yeah, substantial, yeah. and then mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, you know uh, the the bottom third were really. Did you really want to spend you mm-hmm. know twenty five thousand dollars on that? And I always thought it would be. Wouldn't it be great if you would just program five shows mm-hmm. and do the five best ones you could find? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then you miss out on the experiments, Yeah, right? it's true. And you miss all that crazy stuff that just might turn into something, yeah. you know? And and it was funny. We just did a, a devised piece for our main stage, and the students were terrified. I forgot how conservative, I don't know, the people seem to be at this, this time. And um, they just didn't. They said, but we don't have a script. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. And thank God it was a success. Thank God it worked out. They all got, a re, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I learned so much from that. Mm-hmm. But I said to them, and it could have been terrible, too. Mm-hmm. It could have been a disaster, but you have to. It's the nature of any art. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what I said earlier. You, even with the shows that were disasters of mine, you learn from it. And maybe they were just disasters at the wrong time. Maybe it was just a show at the wrong time. (laughs) Maybe a few years later, it would have worked out. People would have taken it differently. It strikes me that in uh, in the world of visual art, uh, unless you're doing large installations, Mm -hmm. um, public art or uh, uh, something that takes a lot of uh, people to produce, like Mm -hmm. a film piece or a video installation... um, if you have uh, a grant or if you have some uh, some sort of seed money to put together a piece of visual art, if it doesn't work out, nobody has to see it. That's true. You can just <laughs> sort of put it away in a drawer and go, I'm going to see that, and then start again. Yeah. Or try or do three different iterations mm-hmm. and go, oh, I'm almost there. And the fifth and sixth one, or maybe by the time you get down to your 12th or 15th painting or a 15th sculpture or whatever the media is, uh, you feel like you're really going at a good clip. Uh, in theater, uh, going back to fix stuff is almost impossible because it takes such a big machine to f- to, to do the first bit. And I'm not talking about necessarily one-person shows or... Uh, I mean, fringe shows tend to be that risk. But even putting a fringe show together requires stage manager and somebody to look for the props and the set and paying a weeks of rehearsal. And it's kind of a big deal. And then once it could... It could flop. You may not have the opportunity to come back uh, or resources mm-hmm. to come back and fix it. Um, do you think that we need uh, – It's and the reason it strikes me is that I feel, I feel like we need a machine that is maybe a bit more robust so yeah. people can take those risks rather than focusing on the successful companies all the time. 
Um, well, I think theaters companies still there. There are theater companies like Gargantua, Volcano, mm-hmm. companies like that 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 do take those risks and they they actually structure it so you can do something mm-hmm. like Gargantua for sure. They do cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So you come and see a cycle and you give feedback, mm-hmm. and then you do it again. And I think a lot of the the bigger theater companies. I've got to find a way to do that again, mm-hmm. to, to have the risk stuff. Mm-hmm. Because remember when Stratford was going to do that? The third stage at Stratford, which yeah. then became the Tom Patterson, yeah. for a while was doing exactly that. And then they had to put bums in seats and it all became too yeah. too big a deal. Yeah. So then it got more structured, um, more controlled. Yeah. Then the studio was going to be like that. The studio, to some degree, yes, but it's it's hard at Stratford. The, the level of, of, I don't know, Money is time and paranoia, I think, mm-hmm. that goes into any big theater company. Mm-hmm. makes it really hard to do really good creative work. Mm-hmm. You really have to rise above that. And, it, and it's, it, you have to have visionaries who, who create theater companies where all the artists in it feel comfortable, yeah. can feel like they can be stupid and do dumb stuff mm-hmm. and don't always second-guess themselves. Mm-hmm. And maybe were it ever thus in theater, maybe that's... You just it's part of the cycle. Things things you get the young people doing that stuff. Not necessarily young, but older people too. People who want to take risks, who work together, and and earn little money and do it for the love, and then it becomes more established, and then the next wave comes in. But it, I think all of us, especially those of us who have kind of opted, like I have, I guess, to work in the more established theaters, mm-hmm. sort of all have soft spots for, for the old days when, you know, we were just sort of putting stuff together ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I like working in more established theatres mostly because I don't like building my own sets and costumes. Mm-hmm. I'd rather work with the actors and the directors and have the ideas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's I, I wish it was, it was easier somehow. And one last question just on that uh, general topic. Uh, one, uh, something I'm really interested in is site-specific work and mm. um, things that are not traditional theatre because traditional theatre, there seems to be a uh, requirement that traditional theatre competes somehow with Netflix and film and mm. other kind of uh, yeah. arts events yeah. uh, instead of offering its own unique mm. um qualities and and focusing on those for example musical theater it's hard to replicate musical theater in any other medium except for live performance um the film and we've had a bunch of live tv events uh of musical theater which in in their own event in their own respect have been successes but really seeing grease on television there's a certain you know circus act of doing a live Mm. performance but honestly when you go to see it in the live theater yeah there's it's a completely different experience so we mm-hmm. should be focusing on that instead of trying to replicate film what about site site specific things things that are uh like along the along the uh the uh line of verbatim theater where you're telling mm-hmm. real people stories of real people in their own words uh in the same way that you're telling a story about a space in that space at that point in time like yeah. do you are you um do the students here have, have an opportunity to create that type of theater? Do you talk about it? Is it something that's on the radar or is it something that's still not uh, so non-traditional that it hasn't quite made it into oh, No, site-specific work was very much a part of here mm-hmm. uh, because I, I taught with Gerard Smith, mm-hmm. whose whole life has been site-specific theater, largely mm-hmm. working with R. Murray Schaefer. Mm-hmm. He and his wife, Diana, who does the costume design, they've, they've you know, done opera in the forest, opera in the woods for a long time. And so very much a part of the program here was that kind of site-specific stuff. We even did a show a few years ago with landscape architecture in the Arboretum. 
students, you know, landscape architecture students and theater students came together to create a piece. We've lost some of that since Gerard left, and and just sort of the energy because it takes a great deal of energy mm -hmm. to do. Uh, for me personally, in my career, I want to do site specific stuff, but not theater. I actually just want to do site specific art. Right. So I guess because after a while, I I've, I've gotten tired of having to having to get along with everybody else. <laughs> Should I say that? Is that heresy? No, that no, no. you spend years, you know, theater is a collaborative art form, and, yeah. and I, I really adore the people I've worked with. But boy, it's, it's, it's nice to do your own work, too, because yeah. you only answer to yourself. And it's your ideas, and nobody says, well, yeah, but maybe it should be red. Yeah. <laughs> or could you make it bigger? Well, no, I'm not going to because I don't want to. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, site-specific is, is still very exciting, and it, it's, we need another Murray Schaefer to come along start doing more of that kind of work. Yeah, I agree. I think those kind of events are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked on, we were speaking about this earlier, but that because about the new magazine called Scene. Mm -hmm. Yes. A new trade journal called Scene, mm -hmm. uh, talking about uh, Hermes Trismegistos uh, at the Union Station. And things like that, I think events like that are are unique. Yeah. Are they are singular experiences that the audience can 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 explore, and um, even if it's not completely successful, it's still something you'll never forget. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's and telling stories that are important. As yeah. long as you're telling stories that are important to people, I think you can touch them. Right? Yeah. Well, and Gerard took took a group of students. He he had money from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, SHIRK mm -hmm. for short, and he went out onto Murray Shaver's property. Actually, I think it was part of his property, mm -hmm. and and built this site specific theatrical event. Mm -hmm that only had four performances. And now it's just kind of rotting away. I, I keep thinking, what's going to happen in 10 years? We, we should have like a, a reunion or a revival or, or 100 years when ar archaeologists come by, right, and find this, yeah. this, this these artifacts lying there. I've, I've always wanted to do a piece, actually, of, of, of masks and things that just kind of dissolved into the ground that mm -hmm. you just like part of the, the site-specific quality of it mm -hmm. was the destruction of the mask. Yeah, exactly. And just sort of leave it there. That's yeah. mm -hmm. I, I remember that I just on a on a rare, on a on a off not non sequitur, but on that note, I remember uh, the the second year of Nuit Blanche, there was a, a an event. There was an installation in uh, in the in what was the old pop shop on Queen Street, and it was a uh, I think it turned into a a car wash or detailing mm -hmm. place. Anyways, it had a car bay and a a large drain and they had placed it was about it was a few years after uh the teenager got picked up and dropped off at the outskirts of regina or uh, mm. saskatoon and froze to death mm. uh then uh, the first nations uh, oh, boy all the time. and uh yeah terrible mm. terrible tragedy and you and, and this 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 installation was a series of ice blocks that was probably the size of uh, a beer or a, a or, or a sarcophagus or something yeah. like that it was that kind of size, mm -hmm. and um, you sort of and they were just slowly melting mm -hmm. into the drain and into each block was carved a letter and it was it spelled out Stonechild which was mm -hmm. the name of that boy and it uh, it, oh, it was the love that. it was the impermanence of it that yeah. was the that was yeah. melting away and as soon as it would disappear it'd be a wet stain yeah. on the floor and then you would never see it again and it spoke so perfectly to things like that and those kind of events i mean it has a theatricality it's yeah. got it's it's occurring in time it's not a static see, that's what like, that's what really excites me mm -hmm. to me that that's so so fabulous and and it's very theatrical it sometimes could be combined with performance mm -hmm. so that's cer certainly the direction i'm going yeah 
I'm excited by that. All right. So let's talk. Now, have you had a chance to uh, shape the program to your own? Uh, you've been here for how many years now? Uh, this will be my 10th year. Okay. So you've had some time to sort of turn the program into what you think it should be. Uh, well, yes and no. Yeah. I, I think that there's what's happened here is since we've lost Gerard, mm-hmm. and Gerard retired, he, nothing happened to him. Sure. He's very happy. <laughs> He's very happy. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, doing site-specific stuff and yeah. all kinds of music out in Perth, near Perth, Ontario. Yeah. Uh, but we've, Gerard is retired. We were trying to build a design school. Right. Uh, something that was different. We were ho- also, he was trying to organize a site-specific conference. Mm-hmm. You have people who do site-specific theater. The university has had gone through huge cutbacks. Oh, sure. I know a lot of universities have and a lot of university programs. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues here is under the old administration we had, we really had to fight for credibility, the whole College of Arts, because it was turning into very much a science university, as it is, the University of Guelph, you know, MUU, science and and agriculture. Um, And so we have spent the last few years just dealing with survival. We've now, we're now surviving, which is great. We're about to hire some, a new teacher here, which is really exciting news. And it's an investment the university has made into our existence, and we've come up with a new curriculum. Yeah. And the curriculum is very much, rather than a traditional undergraduate curriculum where it's uh, you teach a course in design, you teach a course in, in, in acting, a course in technical theater or whatever, you, um, all of these courses now are sort of problem-solving based. So you teach a course, but the thing is, okay, we, we want to create a piece of theater from the 18th century. So you study all aspects of that, and then it has an outcome. Right. Maybe it's just scenes from it, but maybe you also incorporate 18th century costuming or clothing and manners, that kind of thing. So each course is, is centered around the professor and what they want to teach, and they integrate in different ways so that it's a little hard to, dis- to discuss in, in, in a, quickly. Mm-hmm. But you... You, for example, your introduction to technical theater, rather than just teaching people about the, the machines and the lights and that, you show them how they integrate with the, with the performance. Mm-hmm. So how does that lighting actually work for that performance? Why are you focusing that light like that? So that it's much more of a holistic approach to each class, mm-hmm. and it's instructor-centered rather than uh, subject-centered. So if I'm teaching the course, I would probably teach a course on directors and designers and how they work together, mm-hmm. or uh, something on the dramaturgy of design, mm-hmm. so that they learn about it in a kind of a different way. Yeah. So, that sounds like a great direction. That's awesome. I hope so. It's yeah. it's people are excited about it here, and it makes us kind of unique. So we'll see. Catch me in four years. Yes, indeed. Oh, <laughs> see if I'll, it's working. I'll be glad to come back. <laughs> yeah. Here at the University of Guelph, yeah. you've got the LW. Uh, L. W. Connolly Archive, yep. which is a theater archive that yep. uh, that uh, collects theater history. Tell mm-hmm. me about your commitment to um, theater history and yeah. and and uh, and keeping those records and and saving those artifacts. For it's really important. Yeah, we have. Uh, I, I believe it's the largest archive in, in uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Not sure about North America, but it has become the place where people come and bring their stuff, and it's wonderful to go through, yeah. and show the students. I, I, I was, it's interesting because we do tours of the archives and Catherine Harvey, who is the head archivist, she does good things. Like she'll bring out show reports mm-hmm. and things. So who thinks save a show report, right, mm-hmm. from a show? But it's archival material. And 
you never know what happened that night. You know, someone went screaming out of the theater at a certain time, or or you know, there were bats flying through the theater or whatever. So, but there's a substantial design archive, mm -hmm. and it's in a way it's kind of falling apart because people put set models there and they stay there, wow. and they fall apart. Yeah. And what they, for a while, they had money, they got a grant, so they were photographing them. Mm -hmm. so, so you can actually go online and look at a lot of set models. Mm -hmm. They did a 360 oh, of them, wow. which I thought only an archivist would do 360, because who wants to look at the back of a model, of a set <laughs> model? But you can look at it, and all the tape and the funny little notes and bits and pieces that are there. Uh, but I decided when I got the job at Guelph that one of the things I had always wanted to do was to promote theatre design more in Canada. Mm -hmm just like you're doing with these podcasts, thank you very much, um, that there's so little written about it. So I went to them, and with my friend Sean Bria, who's a former theatre des designer but does mostly uh, film design now, all film design, we had talked about who in the archive we might want to feature. And at the time... He was very good friends with Cameron Porteous, who's designed many, many, many shows at the Shaw Festival and elsewhere, and had assisted him. And Cameron's archive was one of the largest archives that was here. So we, we got in touch with Cameron and said, would you like to do this? And he said, well, of course, why not? So he, we got grants. We partnered with Theatre Museum Canada and had about $60,000 ultimately in grants mm -hmm. to do a touring exhibition of Cameron's work. So we, out of that, we, we got the Shaw Festival also helped us, mm -hmm. gave us a lot of help, um, hired two assistants who um, came in, uh, Camille Koo and Taylor Sainsbury, who came in and did the, um, the uh, model refurbishing. Mm -hmm. So they put all the, the models together and put got them into mint condition. They're fabulous looking. We, they, Shaw Festival built touring uh, mm -hmm. cases for us. And then we, we just opened it at a little museum in, in, in Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, in conjunction with the Shaw Festival. Then we took it to the Design Exchange in Toronto who went crazy for it. They mm -hmm. said, we've got to have more of this. Bring us more theater design. We love this. Yeah. And then we did it at the Art Gallery here in Guelph as well. And we, as part of that, we did a catalog. And the catalog went to a lot of places. There's not many. I think there's a lot more places the catalog could be going. Mm -hmm. I know it went to China with Sean Kerwin when she went. I know it went to the last Prague Quadriennale because after we had done this, we were contacted by the ADC mm -hmm. who said, can we take parts of this to, to Prague mm -hmm. for the, the exposition there? So they did. So they took that and they took the catalogs and they, I think they pretty much sold out of the catalogs there, which yeah, was great. Absolutely. But um, now if anybody wants another one, <laughs> Michael Wallace, Theatre Museum of Canada, has a bunch more. And, and it's a good catalogue it, because it's not just pictures, but it's design philosophy and how Cameron approaches design and, and how he grew up and, and, and why he became a designer, all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll give you a copy you can take away. Sure, you know? uh, so that was really important. And uh, since then, I've been a little busy, but the next step is to do Susan Benson. Mm -hmm who, uh, along with Michael Whitfield, her husband, who's, who's a lighting designer, mm -hmm. who've had such huge influence on so many of us as designers. Mm -hmm. I, think, I sort of think of Cameron, Susan, and Michael as being kind of the, 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 the grandparents of our, our generations who, who mentored so many, many, many people. And even if people didn't work with them, have been so influenced by them. Mm -hmm. So I really would have loved to have done Susan and Michael together mm -hmm. 
but it's a big project. So my next <coughs> my next project is to do uh, Susan at least a book of her work. We mm-hmm. we started working on it several years ago, and at the time we were going to do a book on her approach to design, mm-hmm. but we realized we had two books. One is sort of Susan's approach to to theater and her theater work. And then the other is a book on how to be a designer. Right. So the book on how to be a designer w- went away. Yeah. It's still there in my computer. Mm-hmm. But now it's her work, interviews with different people, how she approaches different, like I have s- case studies of how she worked with different d- directors mm-hmm. on shows. Some of them, uh, sadly, who be, who died before I was able to interview them. Mm-hmm. I, I did interview Brian McDonald, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I have all that transcript and that written out. But I didn't get to Robin Phillips in time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I have a lot of her memories and recollections of sort of important shows in her her history mm-hmm. and how again how she grew up and how she thinks designers should work and how she was trained so that's going to be put into a book and maybe a little mini exhibition I'm not going to be as grand this time because it's it's a huge job oh, and yeah. it's really expensive but mm-hmm. at least get that out there uh, it strikes me that we just lost uh, Francois Barbeau yes. uh, a month uh, and two yeah. months ago right yeah. uh, and I had I actually have a line in my um in my future show notes about designers I want to interview and Francois Barbeau, Barbeau was, was one of them. them and you know we lost yeah. uh, we lost him so um, yeah. I think it's really important to get this uh, this kind of information mm-hmm. recorded yeah because it's not it's not there's not enough there's not enough resources out there and theater is such an ephemeral thing yeah. that you have to grab a hold of what is there uh, that you can uh, uh, why you can because yeah. it disappears so easily um, and what what about designers out there? Um, uh, for example, I have my like you, you never throw anything out. I went through and winnowed through all of my old shows mm-hmm. and put them into folders and everything. Um, and I got rid of things that were duplicated, like scripts, for example, that were not written. In. Um, but if there are, there are people out there who are keeping archi- their own archives, mm-hmm. uh, is the archive here looking for that material, or is it overwhelming to bring it down here? Like what 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 do they what do they want? What are they looking for? And what do they want? What do they not want? Well, I'd say contact them. Uh, I know John Dinning has a substantial collection of his stuff that he's been trying to get to them, and I actually have to get in touch and find out what's happening there because a lot of it is the issue of shipping. Mm-hmm. I know that they're pretty overwhelmed with set models, which is really too bad because, oh, I'd love to keep them. Uh, one of the plans, though, for the new renovation in the in the um, archive, in the library, because it's housed in the library, yeah. is to have a wall of set models. Oh, great. So it was going to be like a clear wall that you yeah. can see that. So I hope that's still going through because Catherine really loves theater. This is Catherine Harvey again and um, really wants to preserve it. But, you know, when, when Tyler and, and Cami Coog um, fixed all, all these these um, models up, mm-hmm. you don't get people of their talent and their ability to fix them as well, right? Yes. And people have to be paid. But that's what you need is that kind of um, re refurbishing all the time yeah they have those uh they're what do they call them in a museum they're they're uh preser- preservation it's preservationists or they're they're yeah they're um yeah i don't know what it's called something like that yeah, but yes like, that, yeah. like the victorian and albert museum yeah exactly they have a whole department that does that it kind just of stuff does, right yeah, exactly but th- that's the issue you go and look at working drawings now so many people are given their working drawings over they're faded you can't see yeah. them the the, the tra- tracing paper's falling apart yeah. So much now is done on on computer, and then some stuff's on floppy disks. Well, yes. yeah, <laughs> and and you know, yeah, it's I, it's tricky. It's very tricky. Yeah, I have a three and a half inch drive at home that I keep, and I had to pull some stuff off again wow. for Kevin Lamont because we we, yeah. did, we did a remount of the place the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, do you know about Beverly Emmons and the New York Public Library's Lighting Design Archive? Archive? I have heard about this. Yes, it's uh, it's uh, it's available online, and mm -hmm. they've got uh, Gene Rosenthal, uh, oh, Theron Musser, and mm -hmm. oh, another designer. Uh, maybe Skelton, Tom Skelton. They've got three of their designs in. No, Gil in, Wexler. You have to have Gil Wexler. Anyways, uh, yeah, well, I'm sure anyway, they have. Yeah. I'm sure they have them in the archive, but I don't think they've got. Uh, they don't have it digitized. Because mm -hmm. yeah. again, it's a lot yeah. of work to digitize mm -hmm. and put them in context and. Yeah. Uh, but it's a wonderful resource of people out there who are looking for that. Uh, there's actually a companion podcast called In One that Corey Paddock. Um, uh, not a companion podcast. He's doing the same thing I'm doing with Broadway designers down in New York. Great. And he interviewed Good. Beverly uh, about this project. It's a really exciting project. Actually, uh, I have to interrupt, too, because the British theatre designers are doing a lot oh, as well. I have three books yeah. of their of their catalogs of, of exhibitions they've done, but also there's a section of the Victorian Albert Museum now that is dedicated to theatre design. Yeah, so it's great to go and see. Yeah. That's terrific. Okay, so that's uh, theatre... Theater history done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it seems like there's a lot of. Uh, I, I am. Uh, was lamenting this earlier that uh, things like CTR don't uh, focus on a lot of design work. There's a, like, a, for example, you've been working in the field for 40 years. I did a search in CTR, and I think you were mentioned once. Yes, and part of that I think is just, well, I theater CTR. A lot of it comes out of Guelph, right? You know, right, it's yeah, yeah. like editors, you know doing a lot of people have edited CTR from here. Yeah. Why don't I just step up and say, you know, we should do some more articles. <laughs> it's energy, I guess. Yeah. It, it should happen. It really should happen. And maybe when we do the, um, when I do Susan Benson, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. We certainly want to do the book online mm -hmm. if we can. There's a lot of clearances and issues there, though, of course, because you're dealing with photos of actors and, yeah. and that oh, kind of yeah. thing, you know, and photographers and yeah. getting clearance from all those people for an online book. Uh, but CTR, yeah, there should be. Much, much more. It's encouraging to see a, a journal like Scene, yes. uh, uh, which we were just slumming to downstairs. Uh, it, it wasn't the first issue either. It looks like it was a, it was like number, a number in a volume. I know, and both of us went, why don't we have yeah, this? Why, I've never <laughs> yeah. seen that before. Yeah, why yeah, we, yeah. Uh, it looks incredible. So I, I would encourage people to go to that. We'll find, I'll find out in the show. It'll be in the yeah. show notes. Mm -hmm. um, great. So just finishing up... Uh, the the focus of this podcast is really, or the audience for this podcast really are people at the beginning of their career, yeah. uh, people who are training in theater, uh, or thinking of going of training in theater, mm -hmm. and certainly interested professionals and and uh, high level amateurs. But uh, when you when you talk to people who are make, trying to make a decision to go into theater professionally, mm -hmm. whether it's actoring, actoring. Mm -hmm. That's Actuary. my. That's the. It's late in the day. Whether it's actoring, yeah. uh, acting, or designering. design, performing, designering, <laughs> yeah. directoring, you know, whatever those things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, do you think? I mean, you're training. You're training the next generation. Um, I, I can only assume that you think it's a good idea for people to go into theater. But what do people have to know before they make that decision? What do they have to prepare themselves for? Uh, when they uh, when they go into a profession like theater, and do you think it's uh, it, it can be um, think it's an easy decision to make, or or do you think that people have to be wary? Well, I think they they need to be wary. Mm -hmm. It's not something you're going to earn a lot of money at mm -hmm. at first, mm -hmm. but we all did it. We all made it. Now I'm teaching. And that's part of it. I did have to do that to actually earn some kind of a living. Mm -hmm. Until I got that job at Concordia, I really wasn't making... I was doing okay. Mm -hmm. But you had to do so many shows a year to actually make it 
work, and this so much of what we deal with, still deal with at the Associated Designers of Canada, mm -hmm. is making fees commensurate with the amount of work you have to do and the fact that you can only do six or seven shows a year, unless you're a lighting designer, yeah. without killing yourself. Yeah. Or a sound designer can probably do the same. You know, They can do more. I said mm -hmm. that to my students the other day. You might want to become a lighting designer because <laughs> they, they can do more shows. They, don't, they fly in later. Right. You know? But um, especially costume designers, they really get mm -hmm. the worst yeah. of that. So, yes, I, I'd say to them, if it turns you on, if it excites you, do it. I would also say try to be multidisciplinary if you can. It doesn't hurt. One of the great things for me that I was able to do television as well and film, and they're still very separate worlds. They're not for actors, but for some reason they seem to be for designers, that you seem to go into one or the other. Um, I know Deborah Hansen's managed to bridge. She's doing more costume design, I think, for television and film, and does you know more set and costume design for theater. So there, there are people out there who are managing to do it. Um, and keep teaching in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. you know, getting those degrees uh, can w work very much in your future yeah. because if I didn't have my degree, I had a BFA mm -hmm. and almost an MFA if I hadn't been such a, I don't know, hardhead. Mm -hmm. If I just stayed another year, you know? Yeah, sure. But I, I, I was what, 24? I didn't care. I, I wanted to be, do exciting work. And I was lucky enough that it didn't affect me ultimately because I had a school that wanted to hire me for my professional experience. Mm -hmm. Not all schools will do that. They, but I think the ones, the really good schools do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also understand that if they, you've got an MA and a PhD program, you have to have teachers, people who can teach at that level. Yeah. But uh, anyway... Um, but I don't know if that's good advice. It make, just make yourself happy. I've had so many students who, whose parents made them go into sociology or, or biochem or whatever because they couldn't see them having a theater degree. But they're taking theater courses and half of them have changed their major, you know. And, and really, you, you do what, where your passion is. If you're not enjoying it, if you're not loving it, then yeah, go do something else. Because it's hard and it's very competitive, but most things in the world are, which isn't very encouraging if you're young, right? <laughs> Everybody tells you, oh, it's going to be really hard. I walked, you know, 20 miles in the snow. But it's ultimately really rewarding. Mm -hmm. It really is. Theater is, it's, it, does, it teaches you so much about just how to live, mm -hmm. how to be a, a person, how to work under extreme pressure, mm -hmm. how to work with other people, uh, how to follow your, you know, your own instincts. Those are things you don't learn in other places. Mm -hmm. So studying theater teaches you that. You know, this is my spiel for parents, but it's true. Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's great. I think we'll leave it there. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. And, uh, and I, I look forward so. to the future, uh, your future projects here. You have to let me, keep me in, in I'll the send you. Yes, I'll send you pictures of, the, of my site-specific stuff. That would be awesome. <laughs> no, I've said it. I have to do it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's on the record. Yeah, okay. All Thanks, right. Michael. Thank you so much. That was designer Pat Flood speaking to me in May 2016. Next time, another Bellows podcast about leaving the business, very prescient. And then designer Britta Karaki meets me in Stratford to discuss this Alberta-born designer's fascinating career. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. 
Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the title block at gmail.com. Don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you decide what to do with the hundreds of set models piling up in your basement. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>